2: What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to another Brooklyn Buzz rewatch. I'm your host Nick Faye. With me is always my guy Jack Manuel and special guest Nolan Jensen. Guys, how we doing?
3: Be prepared for Joe Harris chatter for two hours <laughs> while watching a Nets game.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly what I was going to give the uh, a people heads up for. It. It's going to be a lot of Joe Harris love this game, even though this wasn't the greatest Joe Harris performance. Uh, in game one, or in any of the games, to be honest with you, against the Sixers, God. but uh, that's okay. You know, five-game sample size. It's not the uh, end of the world for Joe Harris.
2: And I'll just sit back, let you guys talk about Joe the entire show, but uh, if you, if you want to check out the audio of this stream or all of our other podcast episodes, you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, otgbasketball.com, Blue Wire Pods, and this is brought to you by ag. but let's get this video started, fellas. Obviously going into this series wasn't much hype around the nets it was all about the sixers i know plenty of people expected the sweep and in five games obviously the result was five games but the nets did get this upset in game one and i was lucky enough to watch this game with jack in person
3: Man, I missed Amari Carroll. Yeah, I remember I was before the game, Nick. we were sort of just like, you know, driving around. He picked me up from the station. And it was sort of like, is MB going to play? Is he not going to play? And then it's just like he ends up playing. You know, I know that was the sort of big hype. And I was like sort of refreshing Twitter every sort of five minutes. What, what were your thoughts just before the game was sort of starting, Nolan?
4: You know what? I completely forgot about the Joel Embiid might not be uh, ready to suit up for Game 1, entire storyline. I completely forgot that happened. But, you know, like most people, um, I didn't expect the series to go that long. Obviously, ended up going five games. Uh, I wanted to see a strong outing, maybe potentially steal one out of two at Wells Fargo, and that's obviously what happened. And then the next two at Barclays might be able to give them a series, but... um, it was, you know, game 1 there was it was it was it was great. It gave us a lot of false hope in a sense, but this yeah. <laughs> was a really strong outing by the Nets.
2: It really did. You're like, "Oh god, like maybe they can exploit them. You know, they got JJ Redick out there. We'll put out our three guard lineup with Karis, Spencer, and Delo, and then it's just going to be tough for them to kind of match up with that and, you know, they obviously had success in this game. I think probably lack of adjustments from Kenny and then also the fact Ed Davis was banged up after game 1 really hurt the Nets.
4: Wasn't a great Kenny Atkinson series besides Joe Harris, but that's uh, neither here nor there at this point.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I think Damari also had – a Damari, Rodions like they just – a lot of – D'Angelo, like there just was a strong a – bad games from a lot of guys. Like they just didn't show up. And the lack of three-point shooting in the series, I think, hurt the Nets because I think most people going mm. in, if the Nets had any chance, it was going to be the three-ball.
3: True. And just a question about the Sixers. Do you think this Sixers team right here with – jimmy butler and without al horford and with jj reddick and without josh richardson would have performed better if they just run it back
4: no and i'll let you take this first so this is saying in the another world that they obviously resign um jimmy butler they resign joe harris and they still have you know what honestly i do i do jj reddick was really a huge (laughs) loss for this um Half court setting, especially with their spacing, he for opened sure. up so much for the shooting gravity. And that loss, I mean, that really hasn't been compensated for yet. And Jimmy Butler is—we've seen it with Miami against Brooklyn, you know, multiple times this year. Once he goes down to crunch time, he's—he's he's a guy you want on the floor. So I—I would take this Sixer squad over what we saw this year in a seven-game series ten times out of ten.
2: Yeah, I was actually lucky enough to do a rewatch earlier today, and I was doing a Sixers game from this same postseason against the Raptors when Kawhi hit the crazy shot, and that was one of the discussions we had. And I think, like you mentioned, Owen JJ Redick made it so much easier for Joel Embiid in the post. Jimmy Butler did the same thing. They just made things a lot easier for the other players, specifically Embiid. And now the current mm-hmm. roster, it doesn't fit as it doesn't fit well. The previous roster didn't fit well, but it was more talented. So I think if they ran it back, they'd be more successful.
4: Yeah, a little clunky in a half-court setting with this uh, current iteration, for sure.
2: Yeah, too, a little bit too slow in my eyes. And that was my biggest fear to start the season, and I think it's kind of come to fruition. But I also think they could get away with it more so in the playoffs than probably the regular season.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, the half-court setting is what really matters when it comes to the playoffs. And, you know, when you have Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons as your two sort of primary players, two sort of superstars, you know, one is good in a half court setting, but they're both. You know, they're both okay in a half court setting. You know, with a better spacing around them. And JJ obviously is, you know, one of the three best, you know, shooters in the league. You know, mm-hmm. our boy Joe. You know, Kyle Corva, JJ Redick are the three that sort of come to mind. You know, Duncan Robinson obviously not at this stage, but uh, but this sheet, this season as well, Davis Bertans. But Matt, yeah, I think map, that yeah. he's definitely on the map. But yeah, this. Uh, in a weird way, I'm not gonna. It might be sacrilege to say while we're watching this, this the Sixers play. I actually kind of like the Sixers team. You I mean, know, it's I, extremely I actually,
2: talented starting five.
3: It is. I think that, like, you know, if you're looking at starting five, you know, you you can. Yeah, that that's man. If only Joe sort of brought that sort of consistency throughout the rest of the series. I, and in a weird way, just to completely go on a tangent about Joe Harris, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we're going to be doing that plenty today. I think that if we had, if we have/slash had, have had a playoff sort of series, I reckon Joe would have played much, much better this year because I think that the the Team USA experience, you know, I know a lot of people sort of speak about it maybe overrated, but I think for a guy like Joe, it's validation that he can play with the best and he can, you know, really sort of be there and be a sort of a, a caliber of guy that can contribute when there are other superstars around him. So I think that the confidence that he's gotten this year. And I think that he sort of, like a lot of the players in in this series, you know, even like guys like D'Lo, and and we, it's quite a young team that we sort of relied on. I think that in that sense, I think Joe would have been great this year, and hopefully, can still be great this year.
2: Yeah, I think the experience really that. benefited him because, like. Playoff basketball is different. Like, you're not going to get the same open looks you got in the regular season. And I think Joe's also gotten better at probably hitting contested threes. But he's also going to be used to the pressure of the playoffs because of this series. And then also, like you mentioned, Jack, this stint with Team USA, I think, really is a benefit too. Because it's just like a lot of pressure situation experience.
4: No, I agree with what both of you guys said. This series, in a lot of ways, and this is um, actually some rare Joe Harris slander coming from me.
3: This oh, no. was kind of
4: a, uh, no, J.J. Reddick kind of taught, about, brought him to school with how to be in an efficient yeah. catch-and-shoot threat in the playoff setting. Just J.J. Reddick had, a, if I remember correctly, a pretty phenomenal series, and obviously Joe Harris had his struggles that he had. But like uh, Jack said, the Team USA experience, and not just that, really being a second-slash-third option for about seven weeks there with Kyrie yeah. Irving and Karis LeVert hitting the, um, hitting the bench with their respective injuries, um, he's been a pretty damn dynamic scorer all season for the Nets. I mean, shooting like 63% at the rim. He's got the mid-range going now. So he has all these different avenues of offense which he had in this series but not I don't I don't want to say to the extent in which he has now. So I think like you guys said this experience that he had with the Team USA experience he had this year kind of as that second third guy for a good portion of the season is going to carry over for when it's time to really boogie once Katie and Kyrie Irving hit the floor.
2: One hundred percent, and I think also Joe is impacted because I'm—I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I would assume D'Angelo assisted a lot of his threes, you know, last season. And D'Angelo was essentially shut down in the series, and the playmaking just kind of wasn't there. You saw a lot of the net scoring coming from Isos with either Spencer or Karras.
3: To start this game, you know, D'Lo's been taking some pretty poor shots in terms of his selection from yeah. like the mid range and stuff, and that drive that he that he missed a you know a couple plays ago. You know, most guys would hit that, but we all know that you know we've talked about D'Angelo probably more than any other podcast going around. That we know that his mid-range game uh, and his driving game, sorry, isn't necessarily his strong suit.
2: And I think as a Nets fan, watching early on, Joel Embiid is scaring the shit out of you because he's just hey, <laughs> in this game. Yeah, seven foot
4: three. on is he? 280 pound. Just dynamic post threat down there, just and having l- his way. You feel l- bad l- for l- Jared l- Allen. <laughs> I know it was. It was another. Speaking of learning curves for Joe Harris, this was a learning curve for Jared Allen, who um, I guess is, a, you know, pretty popular topic of discussion around Nets Twitter if he's even going to be on the team next year with DeAndre Jordan taking that starting role, and it it, it does appear like the superstars have a bit more confidence in him at the five, which could mean Jared Allen's demise as a Brooklyn Net, but that's sheer speculation at this point. Yeah.
3: What do you think, Nolan? We haven't really chatted with you on a podcast in a while. What do you think about right. the whole jared allen situation we've chatted to, to matt a little bit we've chatted you know with billy we've chatted mm-hmm. to a lot of guys in nets Ruta. we were obviously very much respect your opinion because you know you've just got great taste in basketball players and basketball <laughs> players <laughs> are just... uh, no what bias. are your thoughts on the jared allen situation
4: see like i want to remove you know emotional attachment i have towards jared allen and it's been difficult for a lot of you know, people and yeah. that's what it do because here's his homegrown talent. We like him. We've seen him grow as his 22nd pick in the 2017 NBA draft. We really. It was a great find by Sean Marks and Trejean Landon at the time. Yeah. That was a great draft pick and he's grown. And he, we, we all thought that he was going to um, develop into, I don't I won't say like an all around big, but he was going to be able to fade off pick and rolls. Um, we know what he was as a free throw shooter as a rookie year. We expected a little more, um versatility and his offensive approach and the right now he's basically exclusive exclusively a role man in the pnr like a weak side rim protector um i've been moderately i want to say moderately disappointed in jared allen's you know 2019 2020 nba season um i think a lot of that is out of his power unfortunately but i i think that he can go somewhere and be a really you know efficient player here he is an efficient player analytically analytically he's one of the best 21 year old 22 year old big men in the nba True. but if you're asking is he going to be a Brooklyn net this year i mean next season if i want to put my money on it i probably would say no but i'm more aligned to say sean marks and company may wait until next year's trade deadline like, whenever that happens and then evaluate who should be on the floor besides Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Because, like, right now there's just still so much uncertainty surrounding the personnel on the floor. So it's, it is it is hard to say.
2: Yeah, I mean, it really is a yeah. tough situation. I think with Jared Allen, we just saw the progress in his rookie season and the sophomore season. You were expecting a jump. That three-point ball really never developed. And I think for Jared, it's not even like... He's so far behind his development. It's just that the Nets timeline just got sped up so much when they signed Kyrie and KD is like it's tough to expect him to already be a championship level center and that's no disrespect yeah. to him. It's just it takes time, and I think I always point to, like, I know it's a, maybe not the biggest thing, but, like, the toughness. It just lacks, like, the grit for a center, and I think going in a series against Embiid, you just miss that, and I think, like, other guys don't respect him, like from Ben Simmons to whoever it might be is just kind of shoving him on those picks. I think you want a little bit more toughness out there, and I think Jared Allen could be that guy, you know, three or four years down the line. Sadly, the Nets need him to be that guy next year. That's why DeAndre might end up, with the starting role and kind of like we've talked about previously, you don't necessarily have to spend a ton at center to get what you need with the rest of the skill in the Nets roster.
3: Funnily enough, we're getting a, a bit of DJ slander in, in the chat on Periscope. Lucas Kaplan, you know, awesome writer and Nets a Public, is, is uh, saying how much of the disappointment this year is due to the 25 minutes a game that DJ gets. I guess. <laughs> I don't think I that's think really that... it
2: in my opinion,
3: but go ahead, Jack. You Okay. I think, I think some of it. I mean, I know at the earliest point of the season, there was a discussion. Did you put it out on Nets Twitter or on Twitter today, Nolan, that like toyin Prince was the sort of whipping boy? Who's going to be the whipping boy next?
4: Yeah, no, I think Toyin Prince. I think he's already assumed that role.
3: Yeah, well, I reckon. I reckon next year, it's. I, I think that DeAndre Jordan was one a one B in that sort of discussion because there were points where Toyin Prince was having some decent games in that sort of sense. Whereas I think for, for right now. Um, I reckon DeAndre Jordan is certainly heading that sort of that, heading that sort of route because unless we get uh, a starting center that is better than him, if we have DeAndre Jordan playing, you know, 25, 28 minutes a night at center, and there's a backup where it's Claxton or some other sort of, you know, makeshift backup center, then uh, DeAndre Jordan will probably be quite clearly the worst guy in the starting five unless you know Torian Prince is is sticking around. So I think that DeAndre had. A very bipolar season is what I would call it. And I think recency bias has okay. it in our heads that, you know, he's been, you know, he's good. And, you know, we're going to see him be good. But if we're taking it holistically over the entire sort of 50, 60 games, however many we've sort of played, right. you know, he, he hasn't had that good of a season. It's been maybe above average, but I wouldn't be, you know, like raving about it.
2: Yeah, I'd say the first half of the season, Jaredon was better. And then towards the later half of the season, you saw DeAndre pick it up. I don't know if you know, Jared had an injury, but I thought he just started to lack, you know, lack some of that enthusiasm and aggression we saw during the stint where everyone was injured. He had a couple big games. We saw him kill it on the offensive boards, and then over like the last two months, he kind of lost some of that. And uh, DeAndre kind of picked up a little bit. And e- even though he's in limited terms of his offensive ability, the one thing I do like about DeAndre is his ability to pass the ball. I think that's something. But obviously, Jared is a substantially more versatile defender.
3: I'll oh, big time.
4: His passing in short rules just seems so deliberate to me. And, like, I, I'm not irrationally hating on the man because he is a pretty good passer. But you can see that we're running, especially Kenny, it was really weird that he was running play specifically for DeAndre as a passer in a short role that he didn't have the same, you know, level of confidence he had in with Jared Allen doing the same actions. But DeAndre Jordan, to kind of reiterate what you guys said, he did have a bit of an up-and-down season, as kind of putting it lightly. He did hold opponents to, like, 40% shooting, which was absolutely incredible and really surprising when I looked at that statistic. Um, Again, like, with the talent on the floor, I think that you can kind of hide him offensively. But ultimately, like, in a second-round series, in the fourth quarter, do you really feel fantastic about having, what would be, 32-year-old DeAndre Jordan on the floor? with you know deteriorating athleticism not necessarily but you know it's the reality that we're going to have to be faced with and i'm still holding out you know faith that he can not be (laughs) i don't know let's put it not terrible but ultimately (laughs) like we'll see
2: (laughs) i think ideally like the nets if they can add a piece in this offseason either being a four, like a real four, like, you know, maybe an Aaron Gordon type that's been mentioned a hundred times or we've kind of- Millsap. Talked, <laughs>
4: give me Millsap. We, met, we talked about Paul Millsap. Oh, I'm um, all in Millsap.
2: We talked about all Aaron Millsap. Baines. We talked about even uh, making a move for a guy like Miles Turner. I think you also have to look at that because I'm not sure if DeAndre is in your ideal closing lineup. You do have the luxury of having another seven footer on the roster. Obviously you don't want to play him a ton of minutes at center. But if you could get away for two minutes at the end of the game playing KD there or, you know, playing him with a, a four that can get minutes at the center like a Paul Millsap, like Jack mentioned, you probably feel okay about mm-hmm.
3: it. And, guys, we've got a question from DRock. How much better will Jared Allen be if he develops and utilizes a mid-range shot C-Bobon during this game here?
4: Ooh, I mean, offensively, he he's more versatile, and that opens yeah. up a lot for him because, like, right now what we've seen is – if um, opposing interior defenses, you know, kind of take away his ability as a roll man in the pick and R by clogging the paint, if he's not crashing the glass, there's not too much else he's doing on that side of the floor. So if he's able to fade off a of pick and roll and keep, you know, interior defenses humble, or if he's able even off the pick and roll to, make you know the right reads or the right passes it would open up so much more for him but at this point i'm not sure if he's ever going to develop that like we always sure. blame kenny atkinson in his you know i guess he was a little um he, he he didn't he didn't want jared allen doing certain things but yeah, yeah. at the same point at the same time i'm not sure if he actually has that in his bag so
2: yeah it is interesting to think about I Matt brought up the point Matt Brooks when he was on here saying how like maybe if Jared had developed you know the mid range shot before going out to the three point line we'd see more success in his shooting. I agree with you though, mm-hmm. Nolan. The fact that like if he could shoot the mid range jumper, he'd have the option on some different passes there too. And like with Torian Prince, I brought this up a lot on this podcast, not being able to hit his corner threes for like the last three months, teams didn't really have to respect that, so they could just clog the paint and shut down the pick and roll, which was pretty much the Nets' go to play a lot of the time.
3: And and Nolan, I saw today you sort of, or maybe it was yesterday, I don't know, I've been asleep obviously in, in, during the day <laughs> your time, um, but you were sort of talking about Kenny Atkinson and your skepticism of him as sort of being an elite coach to sort of maybe right, right, surmise right. it in, in my sort of eyes. What sort of brought that out? I mean, we got, we got Kenny here, so, I mean, it's worth talking about. we sort of talked about him in relation to, to guys like Jared Allen, Joe Harris, these sort of guys. Um, right. What sort of spurred that, and, and and why, I guess, do you think that overall?
4: Um, I want to... Um, quick disclaimer. I've been a Kenny Atkinson apologist. I, I, I love Kenny. I thought all things considered Give me the, trade, Paul, give me the <laughs> <trade>. <laughs> I think all things considering, he did a pretty great job, especially with the injuries and what have you. But... I'm not sure you can sell the idea of Kenny Atkinson as a, you know, an elite coach on a contending roster. Um, I think like right now with what he is, especially analytically speaking, he can get the most out of a roster kind of like what Brooklyn had last year or kind of in a similar sense to what we had this year. Because he can get you looks at the three-point line, his teams get to the line, and he was eighth in defensive rating. Those are all great stats, but like his lack of in-game adjustments, his kind of stubbornness to stick to a more analytically inclined offense and defense, like we 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 see it. Um, I mean, the Spurs did it to us. The Pacers did it to a Chris Paul by himself to absolutely destroy the drop coverage with like really no adjustments whatsoever, and that's hard to sell to a contender in a you know, second, third run of a playoff series where adjustments are just a necessity. Right. Um yeah. even like, it like it happens to elite coaches too. Like Coach Bud was, you know that's
2: one of his he kinda didn't probably. have
4: the great Yeah, he didn't have great adjustments in that series against the Raptors. And Kenny Atkinson kinda <laughs> doesn't have them essentially like whatsoever. And that's it's harsh, but it's what I saw basically this entire year and last season
2: yeah that was like pretty much a similar take that i had the day of the firing i th- it said at first i was like really surprised but the more i thought about it the more it made sense because like right. the fact is if you knew kenny wasn't going to be the coach and kenny knew he wasn't going to be the coach give him the option to get out and just start looking for your next coach if you knew it wasn't going to work and with katie and kyrie you're not trying to waste any time a season and i think it's a big part of a coach to have that offseason with the team now we don't even know what's going to happen the offseason but just, like, if they're able to get a training camp or whatever it might be, it allows them to implement their system, build the chemistry with the team. They still had Kenny here, and they fired him at the beginning of the next season. I think they'd be in a lot
3: worse position. I, guess, I think um,
4: that's – sorry, go ahead, Jack. You
3: got, no, you go. You I was going to
4: say, that, that similar I, – I actually, I, I do agree with Nick. And it kind of also translates over to Jared Allen. Like, we're asking him to grow up right before our very eyes because of the Nets timeline. He's going to have to be what he is at like 25, 26. Whereas with Kenny Atkinson, he's going to have to already have gone through all these adversities, all these playoff losses and learn to adjust on the fly. And that's just not in his repertoire yet. He's still, you know, despite his age, relatively young, new head coach in the NBA, right? So...
2: Yeah, he just needs the reps. And like like you said, no, it's, that's a perfect example. It's like this almost the same thing as Jared Allen. If they had stuck with a young team and D'Angelo is still here and they were running with a whole bunch of young players, yeah, Kenny can stay and they can work their way through it and develop together. But that's just not an option when you have two of the elite scores in the NBA and championship is the main goal and the only goal.
3: Low-key, I love that little tap pass from the previous play from Jared Dudley. Do you guys miss Jared Dudley at all? I'm sure, yes, if you say yes, no, I'm sure yes. you'll just... You are not a real Nets fan. You're know? <laughs> not allowed to say no to that question. <laughs> you are not, no. And did, uh, I, I'm sure everyone here follows him on Twitter and just religiously. He just, he's going to be an NBA personality afterwards. And I know our, our Billy Reinhardt posted a, a sort of tweet where he was sort of saying that the Nets need to sort of take the risk, go for the sort of the third star... And Dudley was against it in a sense. He's sort of like, Carousel Verde or Spencer Dimony are your stars there. You don't need to do it. Uh, are we team Dudley or are we team Billy? Ooh.
2: Honestly, it's a, off, Nick? yeah, I think it's an extremely tough. It's kind of a what if and you have to let it play out. And that's what kind of hurt the Nets and the fact that Kyrie was injured so much this year and there was always the potential maybe Katie would come back in March. You could get that small sample size. Now you don't really have that option. I think Sean Marks, we know, is just going to listen to the office and do what he thinks is best. If he doesn't think there's a good offer for him to make out there, I don't think he's going to pull the trigger. And there's always going to be the option to make that trade at the deadline. So I'm okay if the Nets want to not make the trade in the offseason and they want to make it at the deadline and see what they have with Spencer and Karras and how they can fit with these guys. It just makes me think of, like, less of a three-star design and more of, like, kind of what the Clippers have where they have so many different guys that can attack you and there's so many different, you know, options with the ball in their hands. But obviously you get a little concerned with the spacing because – Neither Spencer or Karras have shown to be amazing off-ball three-point shooters yet.
4: Yeah, like you said, the Clippers and other similar teams that's where, like the Miami Heat, just have so many different bodies that they can throw at you. they got this eight, nine-man rotation that seemingly all can play in a playoff series, and that has importance. We saw it kind of last year with the Raptors, where it's like you have your two guys, which were, you know, Leonard, Siakam, and you have the right complementary pieces, or not even complementary pieces, you just have players that can play in a playoff series you know, down the uh, depth chart, and you you can obviously thrive. Um, I guess I'm going to answer your question with another question. I think... (laughs) God. (laughs) I think this upcoming offseason is even more important for Sean Marks and the Brooklyn Nets than last year's, and that's obviously the biggest offseason in Nets history, and it sounds, you know, somewhat blasphemous in that regard, but would you guys agree with that? I mean, now you have to put all the right pieces to the puzzle together, and quick.
2: The final touches. I think, like, you're about to have a
3: masterpiece. In Yeah, in a way, I think you're right because, you know, the easy part is done now. You know, you've got the superstars and it's now how do you build around them? So if you're sort of looking at other sort of dynastic teams with the the massive superstars you know you look at what the clippers have obviously it's a lot easier in terms of their roster composition because a lot of the pieces are still there on really team-friendly contracts whereas you know there are, uh, are pieces within the nets organization right now that are, are drag us deep into the luxury tax is joe side going to be willing to pay joe harris that big money what do we do with toy and prince what do we do with spencer and Caris? for me yeah I, I think that this is as important if not more important with the team right now you do nothing. I think that the the Nets won't. Uh, the Nets need at least, you know, to quote Kyrie Irving, they need a couple of pieces. You know, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that we need to change everything. I think that in world in scenario A, in universe A, where we keep Karras, we keep Spencer, and you know, you add in you know, Milsap on a mid-level exception or Aaron Baines or or other guys and and other vets. Um, Jared Dudley comes back, I don't know, just sort of Damari Carroll, just throwing out names and you sort of build around the edges. That team I'm pretty confident with because I sort of know what it is. The one that I'm not confident with, and it's not to say that I don't think it can be truly great because I know um, our guy Billy has really advocated for it because, you know, when you get three stars, it's rare that you don't win a championship. In that it never really happens. You know, if you add Bradley Beal, if you add... Uh, ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, you add like a superstar to the core that it already is, that I'm probably a lot more confident with it, but there are obviously depth concerns that do come with that. Uh, right. I would prefer to be in a situation where I've got three superstars and, you know, if Kyrie Irving gets injured, I've still got Bradley Beale and Kevin Durant out there, um, but. I think both scenarios could leave the Nets within championship contention. Now I did a, a, a little season review piece for Kyrie Irving for Nets Republic and, I, and we'll be doing a, a player review uh, on a podcast for him as well. I think that health is going to be a, just no doubt the biggest thing when it comes to this Nets team. That's the, mm-hmm. uh, the only thing that's going to happen. We can't pick up guys that have massive health concerns, well, obviously. Obviously, we we're picking up vets. You know, Paul Millsap doesn't necessarily have a great history behind him. You know, he's starting to break down a little bit. He can't really play anything more than 24, 25 minutes a night. But maybe that's all we need him for. DeAndre Jordan is aging. Uh, I don't necessarily, and obviously, you know, he looks and is fit enough. But I still have concerns. It's a, it's a fascinating uh, thing to sort of contemplate, Nolan. And I really don't know if I have an answer, but I do know that this season. You know i would this off season is probably as if not more important and i totally agree with you on that one
2: i think the best thing we can say though is sean marks has options like there is probably a pursuit of a third store that can make you a championship team and there's also an option to get good role players that can push you to a championship level because we know there's players in this roster that aren't, you know, suitable for a championship team from Jana Musa to probably Rodion's to Theo Pinson and like whatever else is out there. Like you want to have some of these guys that have more of that playoff experience that you feel, you know, confident putting them out there. We even talked about the idea of like maybe just adding um, a good start or something, packaging Torian Prince and a couple first round picks, because I think at this point, you don't really care about your first round picks because you're all in on the yeah. championship. You're trying to win. And you have you know, you have some decent young pieces on the roster and like Spencer's not super young, Karis isn't super young, but they're not old either. You have a Nick Claxton who looks like he could be a really promising player too. So I'm okay if they just wanna say, screw it and trade a ton of first round picks and end up getting talent and not losing the debt they have.
4: No, first round picks at this point are pretty expendable.
2: Especially
3: if they're gonna be thirtieth, yeah, you... <laughs>
2: like yeah, yeah,
3: no, no, for yeah, sure. You, yeah, you go the you go down the Daryl Morey route. That's and, you know obviously they don't <laughs> they've never had picks, but the Clippers, You look at what they've been in the and the, the Clippers the Clippers do the clip but the Clippers got rid of it for Marcus Morris and now that's almost like a, a null and void trade in a lot of ways because Marcus Morris is obviously a free agent and if he doesn't and they gave away a pick for nothing. But who could have predicted a world pandemic breaking out in the middle of an NBA season? I guess in that sense. Uh, a, a really sort of big question that could probably take us an hour and a half to really answer, probably the rest of this game is Is it all going to be worth it if the Nets don't win a chip? You know, obviously, you know, it's championship or bust in, in, a, in a lot of mentalities when it comes to players' narratives, when it comes to sort of teams. You know, the Nets didn't win it when we had Paul Pearson, KG, Jason Terry. Is it going to be all for nothing? And it's sort of like, well, you know, we could have had a really nice sort of fun team if we had a kept you know, D'Angelo Russell around and re signed him. And, you know, it would have been a homebound sort of team, sort of like Brooklyn, sort of homie and, and sort of had that sort of cult narrative. Or is it worth, you know, putting all the chips in there and going, well, Katie and Kyrie are here. They might not be 100% healthy, but, you know, if you're winning, if you're not in the business of championships, then uh, what are you really in the business for? What are your thoughts, lads? No,
4: and you, you
2: Want, want a dessert. really
3: lame answer? <laughs> give me a lame answer. Give me a lame. I, answer. I
4: can give you a really lame answer. It's kind of, kind of insinuated it uh, a little bit there with your uh, last statement, Jack. It's ultimately like, what are you, what are you building for? You know, it's a chance to host a parade in Brooklyn. It's a chance to get the Larry O'Brien in your hands, first one in NBA, you know, history for the Brooklyn Nets slash New Jersey Nets, and the, you know, the franchise as a whole. Um, that fun team had a ceiling. And that fun team ceiling is not the same ceiling that we have now with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So sure. ultimately, I think no matter what the circumstances are, you have to make that move. And it's historically proven is if you get those two stars, you know, that the veterans, they come like the blocks have right now, with like Robin Lopez, you know, Brooke Lopez, Wes Matthews, George Hill, all the way down the floor with them. Yeah, is you have to you have to put all your eggs in the basket and you have to go for the championship. And I, I understand that that might not be the most, you know, popular tape because D'Lo was so loved and we had a really young, exciting, you know, culture-based team that ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, won forty-two games last year. And like, what was their ceiling going to be? You know, somewhere between forty-five and fifty, maybe a second-round exit to the juggernauts of the Eastern Conference. Sure. Whereas now, you know, they're legitimately in the title picture so I think every single time you have to make that move
2: yeah it's chip or bust like what else are you doing it for like you keep D'Angelo Russell what's best case scenario that team And this is no disrespect to D'Lo or Karis or Spencer Dinwiddie or anybody on that team you just don't have a top 10 guy or a top 15 guy that can develop and lead you to even an Eastern Conference Finals unless things just break your way so I think you have to make the move And if not, you're just sitting on your assets and hoping you can make a trade for a superstar at a later point in your rebuild. But I think, like you said, Mm -hmm. like you get Kyrie and KD, you already have a step in the door. You can be the juggernaut in the East now because you have that much star power. Like, we haven't even seen them play. We don't even know how good they really can be. And just a quick shout out to the Nets, as we've been talking so much, taking a, what do we got now, an 11-point lead. At one point, point it was at 21-22. So, good stuff from Brooklyn.
3: Yes. Yeah, I think the the second unit coming in really sort of helped that. you know, Jared Dudley, Ed Davis sort of stabilizing things, Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis Avert, you know, Karis hitting that three. I will say about Karis Avert, Nick, and you probably know this already, that left top of the left wing is absolutely his favorite spot. And yep. if you're scouting him, you okay. make sure you contest that shot because he absolutely loves it there. And just a
2: quick note, we saw Joel Embiid shove Jared Dudley to the ground. Obviously it was a little bit of a flop. But it, Love makes, that. it makes it more intriguing that he didn't get ejected from any game in the series considering, like, the hard fouls he had. And it wasn't even like it was more than just one play that he was kind of acting a little bit. I don't even know what's the word I'm looking for here. But, like, just not playing properly. villain. Yeah, a villain. He was just being a little a bit little too theatric,
4: extra. Yeah. yeah. A theatric.
3: Yeah. So, like. Nick. We, um, and I'll throw this at Nolan, we sort of spoke about, uh, you know, a really sort of general NBA chatter as you generally do on a general NBA podcast for the outlet. And we chatted a little bit about Joel Embiid, and you had some, you know, brilliant really not... Oh, Kara's very, very nice. Yes! That's um, really living this. It's, it's quite <laughs> nice, and it's very fun with uh, two of my friends who like this team as well. But um, speaking about the Sixers, I guess, as we head into this timeout with the Nets up 14, you said Joel Embiid is has caliber to be an MVP player. I want to throw it at Nolan. What do you Ooh, think wow. Embiid's ceiling is? And realistically taking into account, you know, injury history and, and health and such, I think a general Joel Embiid had to be it be nice because, you know, there's chances that he might not be sticking around in six of the land. And, you know, I wouldn't hate him on the nets. He'd, he'd become probably one of my favorite players. But for <laughs> now, what do you think is Joel Embiid in the general NBA landscape?
4: I think Joel Embiid can be as good as Joel Embiid like wants to be. I think with a lot of it with him is a mindset being in the right shape, um, you know, giving it his all on every single possession. He has a little bit of um, I want to say, and it's 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 not comparing the two, but it just reminds me a bit of you know later years Shaq in him, where he's just okay. so physically dominant, where he can obviously you know put his staple on a game, no matter who he's playing. But he he can little little lethargic little lazy at times little lackadaisical on the floor he can be like an mvp candidate i don't think that's some you know absurd abs- take um, whatsoever but he has to really buy in to being you know dominant in however many he plays 30 32 minutes a game like, he, we can see him at times where he is, like, the most dominant player on the floor. And then at times it's just like, dude, this guy needs to nonstop hit a bull flex for the entire offseason.
2: <laughs> that was actually a point we were talking about today. It's like, if Joel Embiid put the type of money that LeBron puts into his body, like, Embiid would be super dominant. His conditioning would be crazy. There'd probably be less injuries, and you just feel a lot better about him. Because it's not even just, like, the injuries. You know, uh, we were talking with Alec Alish on the otg replay today and he was mentioning how like he also misses a good amount of time with like sickness obviously you don't have complete control of that but better hygiene better health you're probably not going to get sick as much and you're going to be in better shape and miss less games
3: do you do either of you think obviously we're nets fans on Sixers fans but speculate away in terms of simmons and mb do you think that there are a little lackadaisical like in their mentalities, and they're a bit sort of too cool for school, and it's just like, you know, I'm the NBA, I'm, I'll am let my talents sort of get me along, in terms of obviously for different reasons, but do you think their mentalities need to change to sort of truly reach what the Six can truly be?
4: I will say not so much Ben Simmons, but with Joel Embiid, okay. I can see it more. I um, know uh, we we all know what the knocking is on is on Ben Simmons. I mean, you can say golf him ten feet beyond the perimeter. He's not going to hoist that thing. Like it's 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 known across the NBA sphere. But I mean, defensively, he's really almost kind of one of the more underrated perimeter defenders in the league that can yep. s- switch through just about anybody. So defensively he's he's an absolute unit. He's never going to take a possession off and he does what he does on offense pretty damn well. It's just he's not going to shoot a 16-footer and at some point in his NBA career like he's going to need that especially as this athleticism you know begins to deteriorate. He has a long way until that happens. But I I don't know if that's a mindset thing as much as like Brett Brown and their offensive scheme just say, like no we're not doing this Ben Simmons play like you know this brand of basketball that's more suitable offensively in like 1992 than it is in 2020. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, but... I think uh, you've we've kind of seen them grown out of it a little bit. I think they still have little bits of it, but I can see the development, especially because I have like that Philly Toronto series fresh in my head, and I saw them both like diving on the floor. I think maybe in the regular season they could pick it up, but as postseason players I think there's a lot there I think it's also like no one mentioned some of it's just Brett Brown like I rewatched that game seven today and Toronto just hard double team Embiid that entire game and he really didn't make great adjustments to make Embiid's life easier
3: yeah I think I think mentality uh, you can sort of if you want to nitpick it even more and sort of delve deep into it even more. I think Simmons has a too-cool-for-school mentality where he doesn't want to look bad on, on the offensive end of the floor. You know, he doesn't want to take a, a mid-range jumper for fear of sort of being put on house of highlights for looking like, a you know, having a weird sort of action. I think Jordan Bead doesn't take it seriously enough in terms of, like you sort of mentioned, guys, about his health, you know. If he stopped drinking the Shirley Temples, he sort of, <laughs> and both of them, funnily enough, said in the preseason that, you know, Joel Embiid has been, you know, in the best shape of his life. He's lost like eight kilos. He hasn't, though he didn't say how he lost it really. And then Ben Simmons has said, and we saw like a couple of sort of, you know, Instagram videos of him taking some threes, but within like two months, that was just gone to the wayside. And then they, they sort of just went back to square one. So I think that they say the right things, but they need to start backing up their actions because, if they really want to be... I, I don't think that... And maybe this is partly youth because, you know, John B is, I think, like 25. Ben Simmons is still in his early 20s. I think both of them need to realize that winning a championship isn't going to come on their talent alone. And their talent is extreme. They are two of the best 15 players in the league. But if you are... If you don't put in every little bit extra, and you know, I think the the last dance of the this weekend will probably reveal it to us exactly what needs to be put into to get a chip, then they're just not going to get there, and one of them's going to get traded, and they're perennially going to be, you know, forgotten sort of players. What could have been? They'll be part of the OTG What If series because I I truly think that they have championship potential. But I don't think, obviously, part of it is team building around them. But I also don't think that they've bought in enough individually as players.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair take, to be honest. Like, you definitely could see it from. I think that's a great point you brought about Ben Simmons not shooting threes because he's kind of like scared of the aspect. Like, if he has a wide open three in the second quarter, just pull up. Like, it's not that bad, especially if you've been working on your shot. But getting back to this game, the Nets have done a great job in the second quarter maintaining the lead and even building it up a little bit. Uh, Ed Davis, I think, has been really big in this series. And I mentioned it earlier in the show. I just felt like if he wasn't injured, the Nets might have been able to get one more game.
3: And I'm reflecting and just watching this team. There's just like, I really miss Ed Davis. I really miss (laughs) Damari Carroll, Jared Dudley, these sort of guys. And obviously, you know, I have a a different version of love for, for guys like Garrett Temple uh, and and DeAndre Jordan, but Ed Davis has brought this just understated confidence and toughness, and it really sucks to sort of see them now outside of the the Nets sort of environment. And I think Ed Davis, a lot of it has been health, but you know he's gone down to being like the a backup string center behind like Tony Bradley in Utah, and you know Joe mm-hmm. Dudley's obviously sort of in L. A. because he wants to be part of the L. A. scene. Damari Carroll got that nice little contract. And then, you know, he is immediately now on the rocket team after a buyout. And it's sort of, it's weird sort of seeing how the product of, you know, I think everyone's sort of asks about next culture, next culture, next culture. And I think it does make a difference in a sense when it comes to getting the most out of players for, you know, an 82 game season, maybe, you know, however many games in the playoffs that does matter. I think that, you know, the, the environment that you're in can make you more productive, less productive, more cohesive. I, I think that truly does matter. I think that, you know, it can be overrated for an overall scheme when it comes to winning a championship, but when it comes to getting the most out of a player individually, I truly do think it matters.
4: Yeah, I think you can say like... do you think that's Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. sorry, go
3: ahead, Nick.
0: No, you got this. I was man.
4: gonna say, do you think that speaks to Kenny Atkinson? I mean, Ed Davis last year, you know, leader in one of the sexier stats in the NBA per thirty six in rebounds, and he yeah. was really good for the Brooklyn Nets and like DeMar Carroll he was a contributor on a playoff team forty two and forty that won a game against a, you know, heavily favored Philadelphia 76ers. So I think that's why it's easier to sell the idea of Kenny Atkinson to a team like the Atlanta Hawks or Chicago Bulls, New York Knicks, than it would be if some contender, you know, let their coach go and he was on the open market.
2: I agree. And I think also a lot is about the team chemistry. Just like you, there's a, a relationship with the guys that I think is just different from this year's team. I think it's just a lot of them came in knowing that they were kind of an underdog. You know, even the veterans on this team weren't really like looked to being, oh, you're so great. You know, they got Demari Carroll off the buyout in Toronto. Ed Davis has been on a ton of teams. And, you know, I think Portland didn't even offer him a deal when the Nets did. So it's just like all these guys came together, felt like underdogs. And that team chemistry, you can just kind of feel with this team. But like Nolan said, I don't think it's as big of a factor. Or Jackie might have said it when it's when it's a championship team. You need that chemistry. But this chemistry here helped a team that probably wasn't supposed to make the playoffs make the playoffs. I don't think it, you know, takes a team like this to a championship level. Even if they get better, it's still at the end of the day to be a championship team. It's more about the talent and the team construction. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB. You might think there's nothing to bet on well you'd be wrong our exclusive partner bet online still has hundreds of events games and props to wager on from the online casino to poker and blackjack they're bringing vegas to you Missing the nfl no problem bet online has live daily madden nfl 20 simulations you can bet on you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even Nathan's hot dog eating contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet online, your online wagering solution.
3: Yeah. I I, I think that as well. I think overall, there's plenty of countless cases that you can make. It's like where chemistry doesn't matter. But there are a couple that do. I think like, you know, the Golden State Warriors and what Steve Kerr sort of built there, you know, the sort of early iterations of the team without Kevin Durant just felt like a fun environment and the culture there, you know, after Mark Jackson sort of transformed them. And I think that culture change help them win that championship, help them win 73 games. And obviously you throw culture out the window as soon as you can get superstars like Kevin Durant and you know absolutely all worldly players and build one of the most talented teams in the history of the game. But I think in certain points, you can argue for the fact that, yeah, culture did matter. Culture can win you a championship in certain ways. Um, I think that it's... Maybe overall, it doesn't matter as much, but I think it can matter, and you know, I think it can go across history. You know, you look at maybe the Detroit Pistons of yesteryear and sort of just the gritty toughness and sort of us-against-them mentality. That, that sort of, the, they're the sort of famous one championship team, you know, during a dynastic sort of era. I think that that's another sort of point where culture can matter. I, I totally agree with both of you and sort of think that, you know, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But I think that there are points where culture can certainly elevate you, even in a championship setting.
4: I think culture needs to meet the personnel that's on the floor. Yeah, sure. Like you can, yeah, you, you can, you can develop a winning culture if you have, like, you know, like uh, Jack said, if you had pieces like Steph Curry, you know, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and Iggy off the bench, Harrison Barnes before 2016 NBA Finals where he was absolutely <laughs> terrible. But you, you, you get my drift. Whereas, like, you can, you can, you can build a culture, a, a winning culture. But you're also going to need certain personnel pieces on the floor. And that's where I kind of meshed the two, if that makes any sense.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think like uh, yeah. maybe the difference for like Golden State is like they were a championship-level team with talent. But the fact that their chemistry was so good, it helped keep the team together. And they became more of a dynasty than just a one-time championship team. I think it can have an impact with that. Even with like looking back at the Spurs teams with Tim Duncan, Ginobili and Parker, they all got along really well and I think that plays a factor some of that Spurs culture but also like I I think at the end of the day like culture, chemistry, everything is amazing but I still am a big believer in talent is going to you know overcome everything like you you oh yeah especially in the nba yeah yeah it's you have five players in the court on your team you have lebron james there's a good chance your team has a chance at being really good and if you surround (laughs) surround him with competent players and the same thing was for kd before he got injured hopefully it can be the same when he gets back
3: yeah, I don't doubt that. And I guess uh, just sort of going off, uh, going to a different sort of topic, Jimmy Butler sort of been reinserted here, guys. And do you think, you know, overall, I know you watched uh, the sort of series uh, with uh, Alec and, and Coy today, Nick. Do you think Jimmy Butler throughout the, the sort of playoffs last year was as important, if not more important, than a guy like Joel Embiid?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Alec Ooh. brought up a great point uh, during the show we were doing earlier today, how... Brett Brown essentially changed the entire offense for the Sixers. Like, Ben Simmons Uh. was running the show, and then all of a sudden it became Jimmy Butler is running the show. He's giving the touches. He's running pick and roll. He's doing a lot of everything. And, uh, I mean, maybe in this postseason – Butler was more important to Embiid because teams were so focused on taking Embiid out of the game. Even you see the Nets in the series, you know, send a lot of double teams his way. You see it a lot in the Toronto series. So Butler was getting his one-on-ones. So it's hard to say that Butler was more important because he's not getting those looks without Embiid getting those double teams and all the attention he's getting.
3: True. I think the uh, fun thing to sort of consider that there's – Plenty of guys on this uh, Sixers team that have been rumored to be, you know, a part of the Brooklyn Nets. You know, we've spoke about on Buzz episodes with Nolan, without Nolan and stuff about, you know, Tobias Harris, Jimmy Butler. It's fun to sort of think about what the Nets could have been, you know, with Jimmy Butler on their team. You know, there was the Jimmy Butler Kyrie rumors that we sort of were lingering for probably at least a couple of weeks. And I think that the you have a ceiling if you have Jimmy Butler on that team. But it's certainly above the ceiling that we would would have had if, like we discussed earlier, with D'Lo and and Karras. I think Jimmy Butler, and I think, you know, people forget that. I think he's, like, 30, if not 31. Um, yeah. Yeah, so he is aging, and I think he's going to age not necessarily the best because of uh, being coached by a guy like Tom Thibodeau. Uh, obviously, under the Nets, he'd probably be a bit better because they would look after him a little bit better with their training staff and their general sort of focus on analytics and, and team well-being and player well-being. But the Nets with Jimmy Butler, what do you think? A oh, nice little drive there by Spencer. I know. I got to shout out Spencer.
2: What? He just cooked the <laughs> shit out of Boban and got the dunk. Like he, <laughs>
4: yeah, he the had... two-hand. I yeah, know. It, it, it's like a quick reminder that he's actually he is athletic. and you know, that two-hand dunk was through traffic.
2: Yeah, he makes it like easy too.
4: I uh, know, he does. He does. He, he, it's weird. He's actually freakishly athletic, but he doesn't really showcase it much. I forget, one, one Brooklyn net was giving him a hard time for that. He's like, he's sneakily the most athletic player in the league. Because, like, every now and then, he'll just beat someone off the dribble and throw down a tomahawk, and you're like, what the hell? Where, where, where did that come from?
2: I feel like yes, he doesn't protect ball. Protects himself from injury. I think that's why he, like, holds that's back smart. a little bit. Because even, like, for the extent we see the energy he exerts in the playoffs, like... I remember watching this first round series and being like, holy shit, Spencer did he can actually defend. Like, we didn't see it a lot during last season. But during this <laughs> series, he did it early in this game. He did a great job chasing J.J. Redick. And I think J.J. Redick didn't have a good game one, but he was able to kind of turn on later in the series. But I was impressed by his defense specifically in this game. And we got Embiid heading to the locker room.
3: Yeah, and, and you see here as well, Dudley playing at center on Boban. And he sort of forces him off the floor in a lot of ways. Because of the the sort of spacing it provides, and you know, dealer had that nice drive in the sort of earlier play. I think Dudley's doing a really, really great job of of playing center, and, I, and you know, I just love the energy yeah. that he brings. He was the the meme king. Uh, did you guys remember the the night king meme? I think it was like Sports yeah. Illustrated that yeah. came up with that. Uh-huh. That was one of the greatest memes. I miss I miss the NBA for a lot of reasons, but I miss the memes a lot.
2: Yeah, no, I do. I miss the means, but just shout out to Jared Dudley. Being willing to take an elbow yeah. and a ball in the face, like, not many guys are willing to do that. Why do we
4: miss him? Yeah.
2: I honestly think he'd him? be a nice help on this team. Like, I don't think he would, you know, be a super talent on the floor, but I think even just, like, his off-court value in the locker room, just mm-hmm. being that yeah, guy. Locker room mediator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of, I mean, I wish the Nets did it. We know you can't really complain about Sean Marks, but I think there was an option to get Jared Dudley. Like, and he, they just didn't pursue him quick enough. Maybe they were unsure how he would fit with Kyrie and KD.
4: I was going to say, and this is, it's kind of, uh, it's not necessarily an unfair take, but it's, it's hard to gauge stuff like this. But I think when you have two expressive personalities and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, or, you know, two of the more polarizing superstars, really the NBA's ever had, it's, nice to have a locker room voice like jared dudley at all times not just for you know maybe sorting out any inadequacies in the locker room but just as a like a media mediator yep. and joe harris our boy joe harris uh jack has done that a bit this year with the nets like he was really yeah. good in trying of controversy like he's answered every question you know really eloquently he's really but having jared- a lot too Yeah, no, he has for sure. That's what what I was alluding to. But like having a Jared Dudley in that locker room would, it's it's one of the things like I'm not really quite sure why we never offered him anything.
3: I think he was set on LA. That's what I think
4: that that, maybe. I think he said Uh,
2: LA called him first and LeBron called him and as soon as he called him, he couldn't tell him no.
4: You can tell (laughs) he loves this team. Like if you you at all follow his Twitter feed, he loves Brooklyn and he loved that squad
3: and it's it's funny because he's had like an extensive career and you know the a, a lot of the things that he talks about and like the replies that he gets into are about his time in Brooklyn obviously you know that was the most recent team beyond this Lakers team that he was on but you know he's had a a, a pretty damn good career you know you know his time in Phoenix you know Devin Booker had nothing but good things to say about him as well so I think there's a special place. And, you know, he's mentioned the fact of like the training facilities, the culture, the staff and, and the coaches. You know, he speaks incredibly highly of, of Brooklyn in general. And I, and I think that, you know, it's always good to have those sort of – when you look back on like, you know, maybe one day it will happen. Maybe we do some sort of collaborative Brooklyn Nets book, Nick. And, and Nolan, maybe we'll get a foreword from you as well, my friend. But Jared Daly going to get his own chapter, it feels like.
2: Yeah, I mean, him, Ed Davis, and Damari Carroll. Excuse me, were really big in like the culture and just like True. changing the team from being like this fun rebuilding team to actually winning games.
3: Mm-hmm. But shout out to the Nets yeah, he again. Was still
2: some- up 15 right here. Like, <laughs> this was a really good game for them.
3: Yeah, I think that, and and I think Coach Kenny actually coached the game well here. Yeah, the Jared Dudley to center was a masterful decision you know i'm not gonna we've we've slandered him plenty a little bit on this pod already we've slandered him plenty in in other pods but credit where credit is due the decision to put jared dudley at center changed the, the game in a lot of ways and allowed the nets to really create offense in a way that sort of suits them and get the game on their terms
2: yeah, I remember doing the recap of this game, and we said, you know, Kenny Atkinson outcoached Brett Brown in this game. That adjustment yep. was big, and what it did was allow them to get the space in the previous possession. They were forced to allow Karis LeVert to ISO JJ Reddick, and I'm taking that matchup every day of the week.
3: Oh, absolutely. Nolan, where do you think? I mean, maybe you've made the, your thoughts already known, let's bring it back up for, for the sake of it. Where do for you want slash think? Oh, Karis getting spicy. Paris with game. ben simmons <laughs> on him too he hit
2: a, he used that pick and roll so perfectly but go ahead nolan
3: and i i think actually ben simmons has gotten better as a defender just watching this game as well i think he's gotten more engaged no, he's, but he that, he's, he's he's improving he's improving that, for sure big time yeah you know, i think like you sort of mentioned you know for me he's one of the defensive players of the year but for coach kenny nolan where do you want him to end up where do you think he'll end oh. up um there's you know, obviously rumors are plenty and, and some open coaching positions more than likely do you think that he, he even gets a head coaching job I, I, i'm interested to hear your thoughts i love him in atlanta
4: like i'm sold on him in atlanta and now that i found out that trey young and Lloyd pierce um might have an impending uh divorce here i really love the idea of all those young pieces obviously you got you know Trey Young and John Collins and the uh you know more obvious players stick out. But even like for players like Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter, um, et cetera, et cetera, and whoever they end up going with the draft this year, he's gonna be really good in their developmental phases. And like Kenny Agison, unfortunately, if I were to say like what kind of coach he is, I immediately look at he can, you know, he can uh he can get your team a culture he can get you in the right direction. I don't know if he's gonna be able to get to that next step, but for Atlanta, they desperately need some like semblance of stability, and Kenny Atkinson can provide that for that young squad. And besides the Hawks, I'm looking at the Chicago Bulls. Yeah. I, I think it would be really interesting if he got the Knicks job. I really do. Yeah. Um, he was an assistant there, you know, about a decade ago, and that whole like Knicks Nets thing that's you know pretty known on the internet. That'd be pretty interesting. So,
2: yeah, I like Atlanta. Knick- I like Chicago. I think an underdog maybe. I know they just extended J.B. Bickerstaff, but I think Cleveland would be an interesting choice too because there'd be like a no-pressure situation. They have guards they need to develop. Obviously, the Knicks make sense, but it almost makes too much sense for the Knicks, and that's why they won't do it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> And their rumor was Tom Thibodeau of late, which would be so goddamn Knicks and would be would funny. be anti way Kenny,
2: ways. pretty much. It's like the complete opposite almost. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. Yeah, he's going to be playing RJ Barrett 46 minutes a night. I'll and say it'd be maybe... the best
4: thing for RJ Barrett would be Kenny Atkinson.
3: Yeah. Will it happen? No, oh, probably not. Happen. No. I, I think that's a really, really good point. In terms of, and we sort of heard that in terms of the rumblings on, on Kenny's departure, that, you know, he didn't want maybe it wasn't 100% true. You know, his voice obviously wasn't being heard and you know, he, want, he preferred coaching this team that we're watching right now because hmm. it just fits more of his style. His voice is, is, is making more of an impact. He's able to use the the skills that are probably right now his best attributes in terms of development player development and in that sort of setting you know he's done that you know not just with really young players but he's done that with you know guys that are are, are veterans and really getting the most out of them you know we're watching guys like Damari Carroll, Jared Dudley and Ed Davis so in situation that you guys just mentioned I think he would totally be utilized and I think that I I 100% think, okay, I 95% think <laughs> that the Bulls will get rid of Boylan. I obviously, so uh, the Bulls uh, have an open position for me. The Knicks have an open position for me. So there's two right there. And you know, uh, as Nolan mentioned, the Atlanta Hawks could have, a, uh, have an opening as well. Um, so for me, it's going to be interesting out of those sort of scenarios, and you know, maybe Houston doesn't have their coach either, and maybe they get rid of Mike Dan D'Antoni if Tillman Fratida can actually afford to to pay for this team anymore. Um, in that sort, of, in that sense, of the imagination. I'm really intrigued because I think even if he goes back to sort of like a Ty Lue head assistant coaching role, um, I'm going to be following what Kenny does.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Kenny. Obviously, we all loved him when he was in Brooklyn. It just kind of like we mentioned the timeline thing, but I just wanted to ask you guys a question, like. At what? At no point during last season did I think the Nets would go into Game One of their playoff series and be up eight at halftime. I think that's just like incredible, considering so many guys in the roster don't even have playoff experience.
3: I, if you were to tell me that Nick, and you were to give me, you know, give me like the odds on it, I would have been like, nah, there is absolutely no chance in hell. And if you're telling me it would come against a team that Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, that. Uh, Tobias Harris and J.J. Redick on it. I would be even like, okay, yeah, we've got Meridian on starting for us and Damari Carroll. Uh, yeah, you you gotta be dreaming, mate. But I think somebody. that would sort of, yeah, <laughs> you would definitely be smoking something. Uh, but in, in in this sort of the sense, and that's a nice three by Dele. I think he really gets things going in this third and fourth. Uh, yeah. It's gonna be nice to sort of see how, and I think it's impressive in general to sort of see how the Nets hold on to this because it shows. The the character of the team and and obviously a team that is far more stacked and probably hungrier and with a lot more pressure on it in the environment of, of Philadelphia sports uh, it really shows that this is probably one of the more impressive Nets wins uh, that we've seen in a in a very long time. I mean,
2: to they date, freely, yeah, and to date, this is you know the most important win in the Sean Marks era. That's a playoff win. That's just like something yeah. they don't have.
3: And I think that you know the it, it's interesting because right now you've got the starters versus the starters, whereas the nets have been their most effective in this game, at least in the first half. And we know without the starters, you know, with guys like Jared Dudley at center, with with Karis Laverde out there, with Spencer Dimwitty out there, um, it's and you know the that lead got trimmed very very quickly. That was a tough lead uh, from JJ Redick. I think it was a two, uh, ridiculous? Oh. That's actually a pretty. It was, uh, I, I'm guessing his foot must have been on the line, but they'll probably review it. But this is where, you know, D'Lo really sort of lacks in in, in a hardcore setting because he slows things down. You know, right now, the the clock is at 14 seconds. You know, He spends essentially 10 seconds getting it up the court and getting into a set, whereas Spencer and Karras, in a lot of ways can push the tempo a little bit. And I think that makes Mm. the Sixers' defense more uncomfortable. I think the Sixers are really comfortable and really adept in a half-court setting when it comes to their defense.
2: And I think, like, the longer you make someone defend, the more likely you're going to be able to find an open shot. Like you mentioned, Jack, if you're initiating the offense at, you know, 16 seconds there you go you just lost eight seconds if you're initiating the offense at 20 seconds now they have to defend a little bit longer which makes all the difference and you're able to kind of take them out of position i know like one of the the nets things that they've done good a little bit this season a little bit last season was they don't necessarily get full out on those fast break buckets but they push just enough that your defense can't get settled
3: yeah, and I think with Kyrie Irving, that's one area that I think he's underrated in. You know, yeah. you sort of see one of his number one highlights is him taking on the Team USA guys and just like cooking them with his handle. <laughs> and,
4: oh, yeah.
3: and I just, and I think when you have that adept handle, and I think Kyrie, I, I mean, I'm I'm always going to be worried about his health in general, but when he's out there and when he's healthy, one thing I I can't doubt is that he does have sleeky good quickness because his handle allows him to be quicker because it gives him space that you know not many guys in nba history can create one play sticks i
2: should
3: have a
2: kind of a... one play sticks. Out, i just don't want to lose this no one uh against the Timberwolves yeah. on opening night he had a fast break one v three took on the t wolf scored and then after he scored he counted, yeah. counted the defenders one,
3: yeah
2: two, three <laughs> so it's all there
4: um, yeah, I, I actually have a different kind of different perspective to uh, yeah. provide when it comes to the Durant and Kyrie Irving and we'll it's, it's always going to be a talking about from, you know, the entire offseason has been a talking boy this entire season thus far When it, in terms of, um, you know, roster and putting the complementary pieces besides those two is I think we often underrate. And this is just a touch base on Jack what Jack said as Kyrie Irving is a bit, you know, underrated in transition, is how complementary of stars those two are. Like when you have Kyrie Irving, 48% shooter, catch and shoot, Kyrie, Kevin Durant last year, about forty percent. They can do so many different things and score in so many different ways. That when we talk about, you know, putting the right complementary pieces beside them, like someone like a Keris can elevate Side both of their individual greatness. And I think that's an angle that we haven't really discussed too often this season because we're all obviously focused on putting Caris Avert, I'm sorry, not Caris Avert, the right complementary pieces that are, you know, elite three point shooters and good defenders, et cetera, et cetera. But like these two are pretty damn dynamic. And I'm not really certain we look at that too often.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Nolan. I remember looking at the numbers for Kyrie in the catch and shoot to the beginning of the season or preseason, and being like, "All right, I think he'll be able to fit with Karis and Spencer because of that off ball ability." And that's a great point. Someone just wrote an article, and I only was able to catch like a little bit of it, and I forget the writer, and I feel terrible about it. But they mentioned how that Kyrie and Katie are so good at off ball, it could lead to Karis potentially having the ball in his hands more, which obviously suits him super well. And just having those guys right. on the outside, and then hitting them, and just allowing them to do their thing. Where I think Kyrie almost at times is better as a shooting guard because that's what he did in Cleveland when they won a championship. LeBron was running the show; he was the point guard. Kyrie just had the ball and he had a score and occasionally play make.
3: And you know Kevin Durant in the Golden State Warriors system was an off yeah. ball piece, and you know he didn't have the ball in his hand a million times. I wonder whether. Whether obviously I don't doubt that you know these the the dynamic nature of those two superstars. Whether they're willing to do it is is another thing and whether like, you know, they're willing to cede responsibility to a character because they know how good he is and his strengths are with the ball in his hands. We all know that. We're seeing it tonight. We've seen it for since he he's become a Brooklyn net. Same with Spencer Dimwitty, you know, he needs the ball in his hand. He is a point guard. You know, he can play off the ball a little bit. But I would be more com- comfortable in, in a lot of ways with Karras off the ball because of his cutting ability. So mm-hmm. it is fascinating. I think that there is going to be have to some have to be some give and take if we were to you know stick with the route of of, of Karras and, and, and Spencer being there rather than sort of getting a third sort of ball dominant guy like a, a Bradley Beal or whoever it might be. So it's it's fascinating. What you know, no matter what in in whatever setting you are you're in and you're trying to build a championship, you have to give up something no matter what you are. Kevin Durant knows that to the full extent. He knows what championship habits are. Kyrie does as well, I think, to a lesser extent. So it's going to be interesting to see how those two sort of come through as leaders in this locker room as well. You know, I wouldn't mind getting, you know, a, a guy who's won a championship, you know, who is just like a veteran guy, like a, not saying Channing Fry. he's obviously not in the league anymore, but guys have just won and know what championship habits look like. You know, Kyrie sort of said back in when it was in Boston, You know, he, they needed a 16-year a vet that can just sort of show them the habits. And it was a, a mini sort of shout-out. Nice little bucket there by Ed Davis. I'll miss those offensive really boards. Really game for Ed Davis. Uh, no, yeah, massive sure. game. Massive game. But yeah, I think that that is a, an incredibly salient point about the sort of dynamism of those two superstars.
2: I don't know what to call this take. It's almost like a conspiracy theory take in the sense that, like, Kyrie and KD might not even want a third star because they want to win a championship together and not have that other piece because, like, they're known as being that complimentary guy. Like, Kyrie was the sidekick to LeBron and Cleveland, even though he, you know, had the crazy performances and was, like, a super crazy story against Clegg Thompson that series. No one talks about it. I mean, Nets fans talk about it and some Golden State fans, but it doesn't doesn't get the respect and then you look at KD, he went to Golden State and everyone says all of his rings are fake. So I think there could be a perspective where these guys, hey, we want to come to Brooklyn. Maybe they'll add a couple of veterans, a couple of role players. But we're going to do this with two stars and we're going to show you we're good enough.
4: I love the idea of what you just mentioned. I mean, you got Kyrie Irving in 2016. Made a case for finals MVP, that NBA finals yeah. against, what, several Hall of Famers in the 73 and 9 Warriors team. Kevin Durant has one of the best not really talked about because of the team and the fact that only won five games NBA finals ever in 2017 yeah. where he averaged like 35 on like a 70% true shooting percentage is absolutely ridiculous You're like you have That's those sad. two guys and they both obviously have a bit of a chip on their shoulder and this could be a legacy title for them in Brooklyn and that whole perspective makes sense in my opinion that hey we're going to do this by ourselves Kevin Durant knows what the, his legacy is he's he's a guy that obviously cares you know, same probably with Kyrie Irving as well and the whole wanting to win one at home and, you know, kind of get out of LeBron's shadow. Like, that's a really interesting perspective that I think has a lot of, um, you know, say in why they went to Brooklyn in the first place. So they could look at Karis Avert and be like, no, this is our third star. This is who we're going to get it done with. And instilling that confidence in Karis Avert would be absolutely massive for his, you know, again, confidence. Yeah, so I, I yeah. do
3: like that perspective.
2: And just throwing another and, uh, thing in there. I'll
3: oh, go ahead, Jack. I'll, t- I'll save this for the next. You got it? Because I, I, I was just going to say, and, and I wonder if, you know, Shaw, Sean Marks is willing to listen to sort of Kevin Durant and Kyrie as they make moves. And, and obviously we sort of hear about the head coaching sort of realm, the fact that, you know, all players will be considered. But when it comes to making moves on the roster, you know, I think that that's an area that, you know, obviously Garrett Temple and Kyrie Irving, you know, a nice little drive there by Giannis yeah. Russell. Nice uh, finger roll. Not necessarily. Yeah, really nice uh, sort of composed finger roll from Dilo there. Um, but yeah, I think that that's an interesting thing to sort of consider whether you know he goes Sean Marks because we do know that Rob Palenka uh, considered uh, the, the viewpoint of Anthony Davis. Uh, and, and LeBron James when he was making moves in the offseason. I, I know Anthony Davis and LeBron were sort of saying that they got sick of Rob Palenka texting them and getting them on the, on the phone. So whether don't know if Sean Marks is willing to go down that realm and go, what do you guys think? Do you think Karras can truly be that guy? Or do you think, you know, I've got a deal here where I can get rid of him for, for Bradley Beal or, or whoever, whoever else it might be. Um, I'm less confident about Bradley Beal these days, but that's a discussion for another day. But uh, it's going to be fascinating to see this offseason uh, from ways more than one.
2: Yeah, I feel like the key word for the Nets over the last month has been communication. Jock Vaughn has brought up a lot. Sean Marks has brought up a lot of being in touch with the players and listening to, I remember a Vaughn quote stuck out because we just talked about it, Jack. Voice, I want to hear from voice one, voice two, voice three, voice four. Like that, they're going to have an impact on that. So I could see Sean communicating with the guys. And I'll just throw this out. This is kind of similar to that. Where I thought about like one of the pros of coming to Brooklyn compared to the other teams, the Nets don't necessarily have a ton of franchise greats. Where if like you go to Brooklyn and you win a championship, you're going to be loved forever. Like You're going to be that guy. Because like Nolan mentioned earlier, they don't have an NBA championship. Obviously, Dr. J in the ABA and then Jason Kidd had the finals runs, but they didn't win. If they come here and they win in Brooklyn, it's going to help their legacy and they're going to be just like a Nets icon for you know, especially Kyrie, maybe not as much KD because of his career in OKC and Golden State. But if they were to win two chips, I think it would be a real huge factor for them, their legacy, and their resume.
3: Yeah, I, I I totally agree with that because I think you no, know, I was hearing this on I think the No Dunks podcast and talking about retired jerseys and it's like you know if you play for the lakers and are somewhat of a, 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 a an iconic player there it's going to be a lot harder to get your jersey retired than if you were to be a really really serviceable player in a lesser known franchise like the brooklyn nets or a lesser sort of historic and, and illustrious franchise and you know i think older players do take that in consideration i think that this off season there are going to be teams you know obviously we don't know how the, the rest of this season will play out if it plays out and, and how that could affect the Brooklyn Nets team as well. You know, if the, the some veterans are willing to take those pay cuts and sort of go, you know what, I want to get with this team. I want to, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are my sort of guys. You know, I, I think that we've got a real shot here. And we've seen plenty of sort of former greats, you know, Stephen Marbury with, um, you know, Brandon Scoopier robertson saying certain things about how good he thinks they can be. I'm, I'm really excited for a lot of reasons. One of the main reasons is because I want to just see Kevin Durant and Kyrie go fu you to so many people that have doubted them. And I think that, you know, Kevin Durant probably more than any other guy is fueled by it in a lot of ways. You know, we, we know that MJ would have to sort of like make up haters for himself to actually sort of motivate himself in a lot of ways because he was just so damn good and so damn loved. Whereas Kevin Durant doesn't have to do that. And I don't think he even needs to make it up in the first place. Uh, he had plenty of naysayers and he's only that's only growing for him so i i just want to see his first game i think that that is going to be must watch television with a capital double w
4: yeah i would love for them to embrace the heel role, yeah as the bad guys and just yeah. Yeah, just and just absolutely own it and you know kind of have that attitude for the entire season that'd be absolutely fantastic in my opinion
2: I would love it too. I mean I definitely could see Spencer buying into it with Kyrie and Katie. I could see oh, yeah. <laughs> I could see DeAndre doing it. Spencer would be crazy on Twitter. The only guy that I can't see being a villain is Gareth of Just is like Joe Harris. Yeah, Joe Harris too. They're both like just such like daredevil. sweet guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like they seem so nice. Like
3: Yeah, I'm trying to think how how what were where Harris could be maybe if he stops eating chipotle and starts eating like taco bell or something <laughs> I feel like or like, like joe harris beard or something yeah if joe harris shaves his beard they like become like the anti version of themselves like yeah, Karras, joe harris just like became, a mustache <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah oh, like, be porn star mustache i mean, I, uh, I mean the, the goatee or something cool. yeah yeah <laughs> like in like a community like an evil Arbed sort of thing with a goatee i'm kind of I mean, I'm getting a little bit worked up about that right now, just thinking about it. But Joe Harris, I think, I'm wondering, you know, behind the scenes, you know, everyone's sort of getting their, their quarantine bids going on. I'm I'm intrigued to see, you know, Kyrie Irving can grow some, some decent facial hair, and we love the, the throw and, and headband Kyrie in a lot of ways. I wonder what Joe Harris's beard is looking like right now.
2: And just getting back to this game, we got D'Angelo Russell 16 points, 6-19 six and 19 from the field. Like, you can sense Ben Simmons is really disrupting him, and like Jack mentioned earlier, some of that – some of those decisions just aren't great in terms of the shot selection.
3: Yeah, I think he – and I think a lot of those misses came in the first half. Yeah. You know, he's beca- – in the third quarter, he's – He's beaten up. Maybe, yeah, he's certainly picked it up, and he's taking better shots, I think. You know, he's driving. The mid-range shots are being taken, you know, from the free throw line rather than from, you know, one or two feet out. Um, so I think that he's – every – it's weird. We've sort of – as we've watched this game, we see that – there's been moments. It's not necessarily like an absolute superstar has really taken over because, you know, this team for the Nets doesn't really have one. They've got mm-hmm. like three nearly, Fantastic. that's a really nice drive from D'Lo. Absolutely sensational drive. I also forget how sexy D'Lo is. Like, he's just <laughs> a good-looking kid. Really good-looking kid.
4: Yeah, how's the guy? Has a guy.
3: He's a really handsome guy, um, and just sort of before I uh, get uh, thrown off by the first takes, um, <laughs> that in in general uh, this team is made up of a, of a collective, and I, I think that's what we've sort of seen throughout this game, and it's why the reason the reason why sorry the Nets have an eight point lead, you know, midway through the third.
2: And a lot of credit to the Nets for not giving up this lead. Like it's gotten slim, it's gotten, oh yeah, slim, yeah. yeah, but they've held yeah. on.
4: <laughs> it's yeah, kind of been crazy. the opposite of what the Nets have been this year. Yeah. A lot, a lot of ways. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Especially in the third quarter. I mean I, I, I think I forget what it was, but our record with a double digit lead was one of the worst in the league. It was. it was absolutely terrible. It was all season we were giving up these huge leads and we were the one I think we were the worst fourth quarter team. And I think that had a lot to do with what do we do down the stretch, who gets the rock now that Kyrie Irving's out. And he got with like Kyrie Irving and Spencer Dinwiddie on the floor at the same time, and we know how much I sold the Nets like to play it down in crunch time. Whereas like what what do we kind of do? And like when Kyrie Irving was on the court, and this is not a knock on Kyrie, it's just what happened this season is we kind of well, the other four Nets on the floor just kind of sat up behind the perimeter and just watched him yep. do what he does best. And it was it was just that's I think that's an argument for needing those complementary pieces that can kind of play, I guess, in a lot of ways better with a uh, Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant, especially down in crunch time because that's one argument for making, you know, drastic moves this offseason is how bad they were in the fourth quarter and giving up double digit leads, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah. I would say also, like, not to trash Kenny, but I think some of it's on him too for lack of adjustments and just like not No, for sure not always doing it but I agree I think you want some of those veterans those high basketball IQ guys that hey Kyrie might be isoing up at the top of the key but I'm going to set a screen for Joe Harris so he can get open so Kyrie has a an option to pass the ball to if he gets hit with a double team in the paint and like you said Nolan it was just so much standing around and I think uh, one aspect I like to look at for like players is like are you putting yourself in a situation where the guy with the ball can actually get you the ball if they need to or are you just kind of standing there and you're Kind of not in a, a sight line or even an option to be thrown a pass because the defender's right there.
4: Yeah, when we offensively stagnated, the Nets really offensive offensively stagnated this season. Yeah,
2: it was it was rough at times. It was really rough, especially during the stretch where the Kyrie and Caris were out, because like you had to deal with minutes in the fourth quarter, even without Spencer at times, or if Spencer was having a bad game, it was like, who is going to create a shot here? Yeah, what do we do? Yeah.
3: They're holding on, like six point lead, I think that more important I think at the I don't know how this is really sort of mature win and I, I was confident going into game two after this, but obviously it was an, an aberration at the end of the day. But I thought if the Nets I think Brett Brown made adjustments beyond this, whereas Coach Kenny didn't necessarily respond. Nice three by Spencer, didn't we? Yeah. I'd
2: like to see Spencer. I think in a lot a of ways three point shooter like he was previous sure. seasons. This year was kind of rough.
4: Yeah, it wasn't that good? I think in a lot of ways this victory kind of woke up the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. They didn't take us yeah. you know all that seriously. They're kind of laying dormant and this win really did wake them up.
3: They cooked the Nets game too. Actually, I got uh, a really fun question. I got a fun question for you guys. Out of the the three guys that are out there right now, Ed Davis, Jared Dudley, and Tommy Carroll, who would you prefer to have on the Nets next season? Dudley.
2: Yeah. Dudley, because I know even if he doesn't have anything in the tank, he still provides off-court value. Where Devo- Mario I'm a little bit scared about. He has a decent game one in the series, and he completely falls off. We, like you mentioned, Jack, he was bought out by uh, San Antonio after signing, I think, a three-year deal. Ed Davis yeah. is good, but they already have DeAndre's contract, and it's not like mm-hmm. Ed Davis and DeAndre are great complement to each other, right? Like we've kind of mentioned, if they're going to add another center, hopefully it's possibly a floor spacer, or at least a versatile yeah, defender. Ideal. Yeah yeah I, I
4: think um we
3: as well.
4: I think we could see a lot of Nick Claxton and Net's Twitter might not be open to this right away, but I mean, small sample sizes he was pretty damn good at the five, even against yeah. more physical um, brutes in the NBA like an Andre Drummond, et cetera, et cetera. like His he toughness impressed provides value there. yeah, no, he he's really skinny, strong. yeah, and that's the thing, I swear to God. Whereas, like, everyone kind of thinks he needs to put on 15, 20 pounds. And, like, yeah, he put on a little muscle, but he's not exactly getting bullied down there in the interior in the minutes that he was on the floor and, you know, being rather brief.
2: Yeah, I like Claxton. I like the skill set he has, you know, to see how his development goes. But I think he could be, a, like, a piece on this team. Like, the skill set he has is rare. Like, we're talking about a, you know, six ten, seven foot guy that can handle the ball, possibly have a jumper, And then, like, uh, versatile defensively. Like, we saw the clips this year when he locked up Devin Booker. He locked up C.J. McCollum. Like, there's plays out there where he could provide.
3: Yeah, I I was getting towards the – as we were getting towards, like, the latter points of the season, I know you have made this point quite a bit on on Twitter, nice little drive there from Spencer, open things up, probably should – and another awesome offensive board. This is where – Davis got injured, yep. That's where the ankle gets done, and – um, there's the only two Nets fans at uh, the Sixers arena, but <laughs> in that sort of sense, I know you've made the point quite a bit, um, Nolan, about the fact that you know guys like Claxon, guys like Musa, guys like Rudyons Kuritz deserved more of a shot. And I know I brought it up a little bit on the buzz and this fact that you know this season doesn't really matter. You know, yes, it does. Every season matters in terms of what you're building towards. Blah 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 blah. But when you have your two superstars injured, that you know your two massive superstars injured. It's right. about finding out what else you've got. That for me is the biggest point, and I don't think the Nets did that enough this season.
4: No, no I, I would agree with that take because at some point it's like, what are we really trying to salvage here? You know, yeah. when we're sitting seven games below five hundred, Kyrie Irving is out for the year, Kevin Durant's out for the year. Um, I mean, I, I guess you could want to make that push for the seventh seed, and maybe Kenny Atkinson thought that that what might potentially save his job. I mean, 7th seed in the East is a difference. 7th and 8th seeds are in the East. is a difference between a four-game you know, series against the Milwaukee Bucks and potentially taking a game kind of like they did last year against someone like the Toronto Raptors. So I can understand the want to play your veterans in that aspect. But, I mean, long-term versus short-term implications, Like I, I would have liked to see more of Jean and Musa, maybe getting him a rhythm because like, I still think he is a versatile scorer. Like he he, he he has shown that. Unfortunately, he's mostly shown that in Long Island and not in Brooklyn. Um, Karooks was a spark plug uh, for us last year. You know, obviously he was starting for, you know, X amount of games last year and it was really well in that role. Started I would like to see him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like started a playoff game. And like, yeah. there it, it was a game January 10th against the Miami Heat where we're on a seven game losing skid, and Kenny puts. Kurooks into the starting lineup. He drops 19 points and we win a huge game and he was great basically all game and then after that it kind of slowly disappeared from the rotation so that didn't make too much sense to me then it doesn't make that much sense to me. Now And like Nicholas Cox you know those back to back games against the Bucks and Sixers where he was honestly one of our better players in both those games and then he goes against Andre Drummond and arguably outplays him and then we don't see him again for basically the entirety of the season and it's like Well, I don't know if Wilson Chandler is going to be on the roster next year. I don't know if Garrett Temple is going to be on the roster next year. So having these young guys being, you know, getting their reps in now when it's time to boogie essentially next season, it would have been nice. And the Nets didn't really have that. And in that aspect, it was a little disappointing.
2: Yeah, I definitely have with the Claxton thing. I wasn't like Musa, just kind of annoyed me with some of his decision-making on the court. but He could learn from it. But I think like... I mean, the counter argument would be maybe like they wanted to develop championship habits. But again, like playing Nick Claxton 10 minutes a game isn't going to be the differential probably in you in a win or a loss anyways. And like you mentioned, Nolan, like I really liked what I saw with Claxton. I liked the energy he provided. There was just like a major spark. Like he had the toughness. He was throwing down some dunks. He was giving you just some excitement to the team. Obviously, it's great for the fans, but it's also great for the players in the court. Because I think it just helps build momentum sometimes with the blocks he had, the dunks he had, and even just like the deflections.
3: Yeah, I thought Claxton deserved way more time than he got, whether it was at the four or the five. I thought he looked best at the five, and you know, we saw him in lineups with Jared Allen with DeAndre Jordan. You know, I think it is tough. You know, to to make an argument for Kenny Atkinson, it is tough when you have two like legitimate starting caliber centers in DeAndre Jordan. And jared allen you also have to manage like how do i develop jared allen how do i make this guy better how do i make you know DeAndre jordan happy you know he's obviously made it known that he's unhappy that he's already lost the starting position in the first place so for him that is a massive challenge and you know obviously the nets ha- haven't really had a fall for a very very long time and Claxon has shown that he can do that to an extent I think that this season, you know, especially in the the latter points, we've sort of seen that Wilson Chandler has been the best person at the four. Torian Prince has played a, a lot of it there as well, but he is a, a makeshift four at best. So, I mean, it, it's, I mean, I understand uh, from a fan perspective, and I'm, I'm totally with you guys, but to make a, the, you know, be devil's advocate, I also see that it is damn tricky to sort of, you know, find the minutes available for him. Especially the way think you that Kenny to.
2: played. Like, the system he had, it was like, you really only have one big on the floor.
4: Right. I understand that perspective, too, but I think you have to. I think he's deserved, you know, actual playing time on the floor. And this is a guy that, like, honestly could be a significant contributor next season. Like, I'm actually really am intrigued by the potential and, you know... Stints of having Katie Claxton at the four-five combination. Like I love the idea of having Claxton guarding Katie in practice. I don't know if you guys saw yeah. Katie take him off the dribble and throw the tomahawk. I mean, it so might not it have looked times. great, but <laughs> I mean, there's 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 really nobody better that Claxton can be guarding in terms of versatility than than Kevin Durant, and that is going to translate over to you know the defensive side of the floor for Claxton next year. So like, I understand that kind of, you know, loaded in the front court. It might not have made as many minutes for Nick Claxton, but like not being able to find 10-15 consistently didn't, it's still not really justifiable.
2: Yeah, you want to, I mean, I think like you said, Nolan, he earned minutes. Like he played hard enough and well enough where you want to see him on the court for what he did. Uh, it'll be interesting. I know some Nets fans are like, trade Jared Allen because I feel great about Nick Claxton being the backup five. Like, that's a, a take that I've seen consistently. Oh, I've seen, yeah,
3: absolutely, yeah. Do you guys agree with that take?
4: It's not I, as obscure as some people may think, but I'm think, not going to go that far.
2: Yeah, I feel like I am am i don't know if I want him as my only option as a backup five. If they were to get somebody like a Paul Millsap or another big that can play minutes at the five so I don't have to depend on a sophomore player in a postseason run, I'd feel a lot better about it. Or even if you maybe mm. have another veteran center on the roster, that's okay not playing minutes and just being in when you need them. Like maybe if Ed Davis were to leave Utah and obviously things haven't gone great there, he'd come and be your third string or, you know, something like that. But I don't know if you want to depend on Nick Claxton to be your backup five when you don't really have a a good sample size of what he is.
3: Yeah, I I think it's true. Um, I I think it's, you know, you you need to have another vet. Um, And it's going to, we've obviously spoken plenty about Jared Allen, but, you know, Nicholas Claxton's future within this team is, is certainly fascinating too, because you know, is he just going to, and what is he going to be on this team next season? Obviously, I think his trajectory, you know, next two three years, is funnily enough dependent on so many other external factors rather than his own talents, which I think is a little bit shitty in ways. You know, the fact that we already have a team construction the way that it is. Um, because there is a lot of talent there, and obviously, Nets Twitter is, is quite obsessed with him. Um, and rightly so, because he has such a, an exciting skill set and the highlights that he has provided. You know, I make this point every day of the week whenever I'm speaking about rookies. If you show me flashes, that's the most important point. And he had some of the the best flashes of any of the rookies this season. You know, he's not Ja Morant or. You know, Zion Williamson, by any stretch of the imagination. But in terms of the the next rung of rookies, if you've watched any of, you know, Nicholas Claxton's highlights and what he can truly bring, then you would say you would be uh, completely on uh, on our side in that respect. Yeah, I There's a think... the
4: potential of him being a real steal at yeah. 31st overall. And that's what's yeah.
2: important. 100%. I think, like, the one thing with young players is it just kind of typically happens where sometimes you have the talent, but, like, you're in a situation where you're just not going to get a chance to play for a while. And I think like the most important thing for Nick Claxton right now is, we know he has a lot of talent, but it's the mental aspect of the game. Because like, if you're playing postseason minutes, You can't make mistakes. You have to understand the defense, understand the offense. Your basketball IQ has to really take that jump, and that's, like, the tougher thing. Obviously, I think he has a pretty good Mm -hmm. basketball IQ because at Georgia, I believe, you know, he was running sets a lot of the time, which helps. Yeah. But it's still tough to ask, you know, a sophomore player to come in and be ready to, you know, play basketball at literally the highest level of your competing for a championship.
4: No, that's fair. And you can see that there's room for growth with Nicholas Claxton in this game. Sometimes he's overzealous. He might, you know, jump for a block that he shouldn't be jumping for and getting out of position or maybe even, like, blowing coverage in a zone, for example. Like, there's definitely room for Nick Claxton to grow and on the defensive side as well. But Nick is right in the... um, thinking that, you know, having him as a backup center on a championship contender team, especially in the playoffs... It is a bit of a gray area but
2: you'd have to see the yeah. sample size we're like you'd have to go yeah. into the season with somebody as an option and then if it by the trade deadline if you know you need to make another move where you can get rid of that guy you feel a lot better but uh it, it, that's one thing i'll say about rodeons that i think hurt his development this year obviously he had a lot of the off-court issues and i was a big advocate for him getting a lot of minutes but then when kenny played him at times he would just make so many of the same mental mistakes where I could understand why Kenny towards the end just elected not to play in minutes because like it would be the same mistake you saw in game one would be the same mistake you Mm. saw in game 46 and it wouldn't just be offensively with the hesitation to shoot the three ball which I think drove every single Nets fan crazy it was also like the missed defensive assignments
3: true and I guess we can chat about Rodion's in a little bit, but the the, the Nets are, are holding on nicely here, and Ed Davis still pushing through the pain to uh, send Joel Embiid to the line. How would you have done it differently, guys? Obviously, you know we want Claxton minutes. It, it was a it was a movement on Nets Twitter. How would you have provided for those minutes? Would you have played him more at the four? Would you have played Jared Allen less minutes? Would you have played DeAndre Jordan less minutes, or is it a combination of three? Um, what? was the solution because obviously we're, we're unlikely to see that again this season.
4: Um If there's one thing I really wanted to see, it was off a really small sample size, but the sample size I saw that was really alluring was I really liked the combination of Wilson Chandler and um Nicholas Claxton in the front court. They, for whatever okay. reason, gelled beautifully. The, you know, the veteran, the grizzled veteran and the young rook defensively at work, they had chemistry It was really strange. And you could really see it in a Detroit game where they were, kind of dominating the interior. And like I said, it didn't make much sense, but it it was beautiful. So I I would have liked to see them play some minutes together off the bench. Um, Again, I don't really know how you made that happen because you have to limit either DeAndre Jordan's or Jared Allen's minutes. And I don't think Kenny Atkinson can limit DeAndre Jordan's minutes any more into which he did this season without obviously, you know, some discontent. And you obviously want to play Jared Allen. So, like you guys said, it gets really confusing. Um, Nick made a good point. Rodeon Skarooks did make a lot of mental mistakes. I think some of that has to do with, obviously, you don't want to bring it up, but off-the-court stuff and the fact that he was in and out of the rotation basically all season, probably had, you know, low confidence slash wasn't really in game rhythm at any point except for a few key moments this entire season. You know, you have one bad game. You know you're going back to the dock. house. I, I guess John and Musa didn't care that he was going to pull from eight feet beyond the perimeter, anyways.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean,
4: if I were to, i oh, go ahead, Nick.
2: Yeah, I was just gonna, you know, piggyback on your point. It was tough for Kenny because I think it's also easy to forget that Jared Allen was still developing. So like, you mm-hmm. don't want to necessarily take minutes away from him, and his hands were kind of yeah, don't want to hinder him. Exactly, and then you're kind of handcuffing yourself with DeAndre because you know you have to play him some minute. So it was always going to be a tough situation based off the system they were playing. But one thing I just want to say about this team is you just love the energy from the bench. Like after Karras hit that three, like everybody was pounding their chest. They were just ecstatic. I will say this about Kenny in this series. This really pissed me off. And, like, obviously, I'm a Karis lover, so I'm going to be a little bit biased here. Karis played 23 minutes in this game. Karis was very good in this game. Next game, the Nets get blown out, so I'm just going to ignore the fact he played 20 minutes. But in Game 3, he only played Karis 27 minutes, and... I remember this game vividly because I was there. Karis had a stretch in the second quarter and the third quarter where he was like the Nets offense, and Kenny only elected him to play 27 minutes. Yep. It was driving me nuts that it took game four for him to finally play him big numbers.
3: He's had a lot of moments when it comes to Karras LeVert. Like, the one that sticks out probably for many Nets fans this OKC. season is the OKC game and Karras LeVert's, uh, his face. Like, literally his face. It is, a. Uh, it's probably a vibe right now, to be honest. Like just like how <laughs> the world, the world in general, just how we're feeling. Let's bring, let's make that meme a, a thing again. Let's just bring it back, old school memes. But I think the he has Coach Kenny has a lot to do with the development and 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 rise of of Karis Avert's game and his confidence. Karras loves him. You know, he's probably he's known as like Coach's pet. You know, um, we heard that quite a bit from Spencer Dinwiddie and other players. But there were times where it would just be like. You see how talented this kid is. You know, don't hold him back. You know, holding him back is only hurting his development.
2: D'Angelo said it. You know, after he scored 50, he posted that on Instagram. And I mean, Harris had an absurd, like, postseason. For your first postseason, he averaged, what, like 20 points a game, like 50% from the field? that best player.
4: Yeah. Yeah, he was the best player.
2: And it was a clear-cut best player, too. And the fact that he didn't play in game three and I was there, I just remember being so pissed off, (laughs) like,
3: it, it's it is certainly a, a blip on Coach Kenny's approach. Yeah. And, and I think it is one thing that is you know we see from him occasionally, and I think he did it more this year because he had to because he had Kyrie Irving on his team, and he did it more with guys like Harris and Spencer because they're not you know rookies anymore; they're they're more close, they're closer to being vets than they are to being rookies uh, in a lot of senses. So he was riding the guys a little bit more, and I think in the in the playoffs he a nice little scoop shot c- cooking. Jonah bolden there i don't know how why Jonah bolden is playing key minutes in a playoff game no slight to to my aussie brethren uh but uh, that's just a obviously jewel and health is a as one thing to watch and manage here and was it this game when no it was it was last year when michael scott was texting was which game was it
2: oh it was amir johnson it was this game on the bench actually
3: johnson. yeah i remember that. oh i completely forgot that
4: happened too that was yeah i remember that popping yeah. off on twitter a bit you got really lit up for that i mean
2: like to defend him, no, it came out afterwards that he was texting about his daughter being sick. Which, his daughter. Yeah, you give him a yeah. little bit of a pass, but I guess like in the NBA world, they say like you have PR staff, Groupies. PR staff yep. on you. So.
3: Yep, it's mm-hmm. absolutely at the end of the day. I man, I, I just tough, really. Maybe. Yeah, big time. I just really. Really miss discussing just like those little things, any little thing like that would just make Nets like NBA Twitter pop off. And now we're sort of, I guess that's the excitement of the MJ documentary, but it's just <laughs> like talking about like different things and, and you know, arguing about, you know, Karis Laver, arguing about Coach Kenny. You know, arguing about the fact that the the Nets blew another freaking ten point lead—it's mm. as much as like it, it infuriates me. Uh, it's better than the alternative, which is—you know—I'm right. loving rewatching this game. This is this is a welcome alternative. But we got to keep doing this stuff. But uh, I miss the NBA. I miss the Nets. Yeah, yeah,
4: I do definitely miss arguing for Justin Anderson minutes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Where's he gonna go? Where's he gonna go, Nolan? That that piece that absolutely exploded because it was a very very well-written um, piece by yourself. I appreciate Where's that. that yeah. What's his future? What's his future?
0: I, I don't
4: know. You know, he, 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 he's doing really well in the G League. Yeah, that piece unexpectedly blew up. Um, I guess Virginia they really care about their alumni. Whoever makes it into the NBA, like I came across him and they were like equally in love as Joe Harris yeah. with Joe Harris huh. as I am. I'm like, okay, I love these guys and I end up following them all. <laughs> But they are so loyal to any player that comes out of Virginia. Like, I really do respect that cult community they have going on there. They just jumped on that piece. I'm like, these guys are awesome. They're kind of like D-Lo stands, where it's just like <laughs> yeah, these yeah, are just like a group of guys. Yeah. Where, um, like, even uh, I think a prominent Golden State beat reporter mentioned is, it. like, I'm going to miss the D-Lo stands because they were so enjoyable. Like, I, you know, you probably do miss them around Ned's Twitter. We still have them, obviously, to an yeah, extent, yeah. but not as, you know, intense as it once was. But, uh, yeah, now that, I guess the only arguing I really do is for um, Gary Harris, but that's uh, <laughs> that's a whole other uh, bag of worms.
3: There you got your yeah, American we made... Texan right there, Jack. There <laughs> it is. And, yeah, obviously it looks worse at the moment. Um, but, yeah, we had Matt – we sort of fought – We didn't necessarily force him. Uh, That sounds a bit bit extreme, but we sort of made (laughs) him sort of make arguments for his uh, previous trade packages.
4: Justifying trades, Matt.
3: Yeah, it's. um, I mean, revisionist history is wonderful. At the end of the day, a couple of those
4: trades still work, though. Mm -hmm. Like a
2: couple. They do.
3: I mean, There were some
4: good trades.
3: Yeah, they're really. I mean, Matt's a smart guy. Yeah, I mean, there's I like this. One from Maxi
4: Klaiber I loved because yeah. I'm a huge Klaiber guy. Like I say once a week, I wish Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were best friends with Maxi Klaiber. <laughs> but in an alternate yeah. universe.
3: Yeah, yeah, true, true. Um, I put a poll up on Twitter, lads. Oh, and it is getting just traction for one way. Uh, who would you prefer to be on next season's Nets team, out of a course and Nicholas Claxton. For the record, uh, all votes, or all 15 votes in the past seven minutes have gone to Nicholas Claxton. No one... Uh, where the Courage stands when you need him.
2: Yeah, I'm going with Claxton here too. <laughs> there we
3: go. There we go. I'll probably do the same. I think, like, um, best...
2: Oh, best case Claxton is just, a, like, literally a potential all-star. I feel like it's a hot take, but, like, the skill set is there where if he were to develop to the ceiling that we think that he has, I don't think, like, an all-star big is out of the question because of the ability to handle, pass, shoot. And we mentioned, like... The skinny toughness.
3: Love that skinny toughness. Yeah, you know, we had... Kind of
2: what up, topic. Nolan?
4: I, I, just a quick question. It's kind of off-topic because I just saw the game preview. You think like Magic, Twitter kind of hold
3: on to game one against Toronto as much as we do with Philadelphia?
2: Probably Ooh. more, to be honest.
3: Yeah, I completely I feel... That day, That was a wild day at your place, Nick. It's just like, you know, the Magic were popping off, the Nets are popping off. It was just the... The, the the day of the, the non-favorites in the, the the underdogs.
2: Yeah. JJ Redick fouled out five points. That was a really big difference in the series, not to cut you guys True. off and change topic, but Redick was not good in this game. He really picks it up the rest of the series, and he had some huge shots in game three and yeah, game yes.
3: four. Yeah, he is just the consummate vet, and I, I think that... That's the trajectory where Joe Harris needs to get to. You know, he needs to be an important factor in playoff series where he is, and he needs to be able to to take bad shots and hit them, because I think he's gotten better at that this season, and I think he's gotten more confident within his own skills. You know, this for mm-hmm. him, it, it's it, this was sort of like the the breakout moment, and you know, where the where guys really step up and make a name for themselves is in the playoffs, and unfortunately, not many Nets were able to do that. You know, we saw, like we sort of spoke about with Karis LeVert and, you know, the Vets really sort of had their moments too. But outside of that, you know, some of our most important players really sort of shied away from that. So for me, you know, it's going to be, you know, next season, you know, the, the regular season um, obviously is going to be something that matters and there are going to be plenty of stories that go through. But next year's playoff, we fast forward literally probably 12 months, the playoffs will be starting relatively soon at, the, at this point. You know, where are the Nets going to be? Where What team is going to be there? What Joe Harris are we going to see? It's going to be, hmm. uh, it's it's a fascinating sort of thinking exercise.
4: I can't agree more with the Joe Harris take bad shots narrative. Like, I, I think we've been um, kind of 1A and 1B on Nets Twitter when it comes to um, advocating for such. Like, I just, I do, I want him to take bad shots shots like hey Torian Prince does it you know all the time <laughs> kind of yeah. out of left field <laughs> but uh uh you know like like you say with Joe Harris one thing he does kind of do actually a little better than Jay Reddick because he can put the ball on the floor and make yeah. things happen that way you know sure. compared to other elite three-point shooters in the league but like you would want to see him you know taking off balance three every now and then because come playoff time when the looks aren't going to be, you know, extremely favorable every time you have an opportunity off the catch. Like that's where J.J. Reddick shined last year, and that's where Joe Harris kind of, you know, floundered a bit.
2: And we've seen and- Joe hit clutch threes that are contested. I brought this up to Jack mm-hmm. in a previous show. I saw, like, a highlight package randomly on YouTube, and it was, like, a Joe clutched threes that he hit for the Nets, and a lot of them were, like, tough shots that helped keep the Nets either in the game or took them to the next level.
3: In that season, in the off season, what do you think is the, the skill that Joe Harris should be practicing the most? Mid. Yeah, yeah I'd have him off the
4: edge, yeah. When he, when he can't necessarily... Because he, he sometimes gets stuck in this awkward limbo when he's gets rushed off the line where he feels like he has to commit to the drive, and that's where you see him kind of take to into a storm of bigs, and it goes absolutely nowhere favorable. But if he can pop that 16-footer Um, in like pull-ups you know situations he's only taken like 20 mid-range shots this year by shooting 50 percent like he can obviously do that i think that's the next step for him
2: yeah i agree three three level scoring is crucial like that's one of the skills i think that just makes you that much harder to defend especially when you have an elite skill as a three-point shooter and you know teams are going to be forcing you off the line that pull-up jumper is there and jj reddick hits that a lot and then also we already know he can drive and But it's not like he's an elite finisher over bigs. Like he can do it when he Mm. has the leverage. When he doesn't have the leverage, that's what really hurts him. I've also heard the 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 mention. I think Billy brought this up on a show, maybe of adding to his left hand because typically, if he doesn't have the leverage on the left side, he'll always go to that reverse. And we saw that reverse get blocked a lot this season.
3: That's a good point. That's a really good point by Billy could probably uh, let Spencer Dinwiddie know that as well, but um, my... (laughs) No, if Spencer had a scoop lefty, like, that would be (sighs) dirty. Uh, Unstoppable. He'd be unstoppable, literally. He already is, like, a walking, you know, when it comes to... He just gets points. Like, whenever he's just a points-per-possession guy, He is a statistician's... statistician's, What's statistician? Statistician's darling. I'm going to argue... For the other side, whereas I want to see him go the davis Bertans, Duncan Robinson route and just practice the worst, weirdest threes you've ever seen. So he just oh. keeps taking and like he just shoots, you know, not necessarily like Duncan Robinson level S, where he's a, on track to take the most in terms of percentage of threes to other shots ever in the history of the game. Like I think 75 or 80% or 90% of his shots have been taken from the perimeter because he's. He does take them occasionally but he still doesn't take them to the extent of like in, if we're ranking the bad three-point shooting you know, the, the guys who make bad three-point shots look good i wouldn't have joe harris in in that list necessarily or in that no, top, sort of five it. top ten you know for me like guys like duncan robertson davis baton jj reddit um those for me are like he's still not on that level as a three-point shooter he's incredibly efficient And smart, and takes the right shots because he has just a very high IQ, and he knows what his strengths are. He said that plenty of times. You know, the coaches, when they're working with you, they don't work with you beyond what your capabilities are, and beyond what they want you to do on the floor. What I want him to do on the floor is more of that, and I want the coaches, whatever assistants are are working with him in the offseason, to be getting him to do that, as well as you know the other things that you guys pointed to, but. I think he can take another jump as a three-point shooter. I think he would be, better of off,
4: reverses.
2: would be better off studying more of a J.J. Reddick than a Davis Bertons and a Duncan Robinson because I think Bertons and Robinson get a lot of their three-point shot attempts off because of their length, and I think they have pretty good wingspans where I'm not sure on Joe's wingspan. I think he'd be more like the J.J. Reddick type using his mobility to have to like maybe float a little bit on the threes because I'm not sure if he's has the height to shoot over a ton of guys.
3: True. I I, I I When it comes to height, you know, Davis becomes like 6'10", so probably not the best mm-hmm. comparison point. But yeah, I think J.J. already is, Kyle is Korver. a good setup yep, Yeah, Redick, no, Kyle, Kyle-
4: Korver is a contortionist mid too, same with J.J. Joe, Joe doesn't really have that. Like, his five to six three-point attempts per game are pretty clean. Yeah. Whereas Kyle Corver can come off like a double screen and still on the go, you know, get his body in the parallel to the hoop and get a shot off leaning to his left or right. Like it doesn't really matter. And you feel Whereas like it's Joe Harris off. is more, yeah. Yeah. Where Joe Harris is more like straight up. Everything is pretty fundamentally sound.
3: Yeah. And, and I think that that's, you know, how comfortable are you taking the bad shots? You know, Joe just isn't yet. And I think that's just a confidence thing. And you know, generally the best players, you know, they don't want to work beyond what they do and obviously you know Joe can just he knows how to work the around the rim he's good on it he's great on a straight line drive you know how much are you working on i guess that's the the, the age old question how much are you working on the things that you're already great at and making them better and how much are you working on your you know deficiencies and making them better i think a lot of coaching these days is about, about making your good things elite. I think Duncan Robinson did say that on a podcast and has said that, and, and a lot of players have said that. It's about making the things you're good at elite I and mean, the th- things that you're okay at very good rather than the things that you're bad at, you know, average.
2: And I'd say this about Joe. He might just have his best season ever next year if he doesn't even improve and he goes into next season as the same guy because mm-hmm. he's going to be playing with the best talent he's ever played with. He's playing with two of the best scorers that are going to draw so much attention. He's probably going to have more open threes in his entire career next season.
3: Yeah, you're not wrong about
4: that. In like a really weird way, I would love to see him do drills with actually Kyrie Irving because he also has that contortionist off-the-catch ability that Kyle Korver and J.J. Redick has. It's kind of, again, one of the more underrated aspects of his games where he'll come off the curl and he won't be straight up, but he can get a shot off going anywhere. Like in a, in another world where he doesn't have his handles that he has and he's not, you know, Kyrie Irving, he'd be a really elite three point shooter. Whereas him and Joe can do that in practice, and that could also help develop that weird J.J. Redick, you know, Kyle Culver contortionist model of three point shooting that we kind of want Joe Harris to have.
2: Yeah, I like it. I think so, too. I think, like, Kyrie does a great job floating and also fading. And I think that's what you can do when you don't necessarily have the size. And we know Kyrie isn't the biggest guy on the court, and he still finds his way to get a shot off against elite defenders on a regular basis.
3: Let's close this one out, boys. You know, the the Sixers are throwing out the sort of backups and the starters. 13 points up with three minutes to go. This is is what I've got. (laughs) This is when I was really, really, really happy. For some reason, Jimmy Butler is still out there. I have no idea why. And for some reason, we've called a timeout.
2: And Brett Brown, he told Brett Brown he's not
3: coming out of the game. Yeah, that's just, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. But this, I mean, this game, we've spoken about it a little bit, but sort of being able to keep an eye on it, just how impressive this win was. And, you know, there weren't many, you know, obviously, as we see there, DeAndre Russell, second half, seven of 12 from the field. I think he was the the nervous energy of his first ever playoff game started he's just started to feel himself a little bit more and be able to find better shots and when the nets were playing better you know he was able to sort of fit into that a little bit more rather than him having to lead the nets from something and, and from the from the depths of the doldrum like he did a lot of the points during the regular season
2: I agree I agree I think when Karrison Spencer started to score it alleviated some of that pressure off him where he's like all right I can play my game I don't have to be a star or an all-star to win this game. I can just do what I have to do, and hmm. the game will kind of just come to me. But I think, to be honest, this yeah. second half was the best half of the series for him.
3: Yeah, I don't doubt that. Yeah. I don't doubt that. it's, And I think that a lot of it was, you know, better shot selection, better spacing. You know, a lot of the times he was playing with Jared Dudley, and on the drives he was taking, you know, he was having to go up against, like, a Mike Scott or a Jonah Bolden, and you know, not necessarily Joel M B down there. And, you know, this is... I think this is probably one of the better moments of De'Angelo Russell's career. You know, I think that nothing right now in that shot right there is just epitomizes D'Lo um, at, at his core. Nothing right now is going to top the the Sacramento Kings comeback and and that game which was just yeah. absolutely otherworldly. I'm very intrigued, and I know all of us are going to be watching what he can do alongside his best friend and him faking the Jimmy Butler. That was kind of cool. Um, what he's going to do in Minnesota? What do you guys think that they those two could do together as the as the best buds
2: well if it's anything like i've done with Ooh. them in 2k it'll be really good No, um, <laughs> <laughs> but i think like honestly a pick and pop like cat hasn't necessarily played with any elite point guards like what's the best point guard he played with jeff teague and ricky jeff rubio teague, yeah. yeah like you can yeah. Maybe say jimmy, yeah like maybe you consider jimmy butler like a playmaking guard but whatever that's not his true skill like d'angelo is going to be able to get a lot out of cat like you mentioned jack the chemistry they have I think it's great for both those guys. Obviously, it also makes Delo not have to be the best player on the team where he's being that complimentary piece to Cat, and Cat can be the real superstar and Delo can be the all-star. Obviously, you want to surround those guys with good defenders, which they do have a couple of them in uh, Minnesota.
4: Yeah, that was the point I was going to nail home. I think offensively, this could be a really fun team. The Minnesota Timberwolves moving forward here. Uh, but just as Dick mentioned, you have to have the correct, you know, defensive pieces around Karl Anthony Townsend and Deandre Russell because the verdict is kind of out of them on that end of the floor, and at times it can be a little, you know, lackadaisical, a little lethargic, and can get a little ugly. So if they incorporate the right pieces around them, and I actually do like the job that um, uh I, I don't know how to say his last name or not, Rose has done with the Timberwolves, so... Yep. I think they're 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 going to be an interesting team. It's 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 nice to see the Timberwolves probably trending upwards because despite that little brief stint Jimmy Butler had in Minnesota, this has been an organization that has been kind of in the dump since KG left to the Boston. Them and Sacramento are two teams I'd like to see you know around the playoff picture in the coming years.
2: I think Josh Okoge sure. and Jarrett Culver could be great complementary pieces for them if they develop rightly. We've already seen some defense from Okogie, so. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I'll, I'll ask you guys I'm, this.
3: I'll, oh, go ahead. No, um, I was just going to say, I really, I really like Malik Beasley too.
2: Yeah, Beasley's really yeah. popped off. That was a that was a great trade. I just didn't understand yeah. why no, – well, I guess I kind of understand because no one wanted to pay Malik Beasley, but Minnesota's in a situation where they don't really have to pay a ton of other yeah. guys. So getting him That's for true. whatever they got him for, which wasn't much, is a great move. But I was thinking like D'Angelo in this series – This is what kind of sold me on the fact that he can't be your number one guy or like this is where like my ceiling got lowered on him because of the job Ben Simmons did on him the rest of the series, knowing that he pretty much got locked up and he became like almost a non-factor.
3: Yeah, I think that we discussed that at length. What can D'Angelo Russell, what is his role on a championship team? And, you know, in terms of, like we sort of discussed at the start of the pod, in terms of what was the trajectory of this team with D'Angelo Russell as the sort of fulcrum and, and face of the team. You know, Karrasov might have been the best player a, a lot of the time and during certain points, but D'Lo was the face, the, the marketing sort of guy when it came to, to those sort of things. And, you know, I think that on a championship level team, D'Lo, if he, I don't think that... It, it might be a hot take at such an early point of his career. I, I'm i very skeptical that he will be part of a championship team along, in Minnesota unless they are to get a third star, and he is the third third best player out of those stars.
4: I got a dark take. Well, no. re- <laughs> relative, about D'Angelo Russell and this whole team. Um, I can see the perspective of D'Angelo Russell uh, amongst Nick's, Nets Twitter, you know, kind of going to the other side of the spectrum in the next coming years, if he were still mm. to be a Brooklyn Net. because with this team, it was fun. It was new. They weren't supposed to do anything. They made the playoffs, you know, the seventh seed. I'm sorry, sixth seed in the Eastern Conference, despite, you know, like East being having them like 25th or 24th in the power rankings article preseason whatever position they had them at. So it was, it was really fun. And, uh, like I said, it was new. And it was great. But this next season... If we never get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, we never have the off that we have. It's time for that, ne- and it's time to keep building off of that next step. And I'm not sure they would have with DeAndre Russell as the first option. Like their ceiling was probably where they not not, not necessarily where they were at this year, but maybe 42, 45 wins, maybe you know. Kind fans of start getting frustrated with the lack of growth or lack of development. I can see it honestly when yeah. looking at the Andrew Russell with the Nets and their timeline uh, perpetuating after this um series kinda of going dark in the next two to three years.
2: Yeah, I think it's definitely a potential. I think like the one thing that's scary is just the lack of defense at the point guard position to push you to that next level think like if a team's able to run that pick and roll on you with success and your guard's going to always get beat teams are just going to eat that in the playoffs
3: yeah i don't i can certainly see a timeline like that as well game over guys bang bang
2: game one victory felt good and then obviously it didn't last i mean game four was so close mike scott ripped out nets fans souls in that game but i don't think we're going to be able to rewatch anything else from the playoffs (laughs) at least from this year
3: Yeah, we'll, we'll find some other games that will be an enjoyable occasion for, for Nets fans because we want to have some fun now uh, during these self isolation quarantine times.
2: I think one game that really sticks out and you made me think about it, Jack, is like you mentioned Spencer's ISO scoring. I have to rewatch Nets Lakers. I already rewatched it like the first week of quarantine, but the drive Spencer has in that game on Anthony Davis on multiple occasions is maybe some of the most impressive stuff of his entire career.
3: Nolan, you down? Of course. All right. Let's get. Let's let make it happen. Nid. Let's let's lock it in. No, I reckon yeah. I reckon Nick download it. Send me the file. Send Nolan <laughs> the file, and uh, I'll do a little bit of prep, and uh, we'll get it popping. All right, guys. Always hey, a sir. pleasure.
2: Big thanks for hopping on, Nolan, Jack. Always fun talking with you, Nets. And you can find the audio of this show and the other podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, otgbasketball.com, dot
1: and Blue Wire Pods. The Aaron's AA team makes getting the name brand furniture, electronics, and appliances you need easy and affordable. We're talking top brands like HP, Samsung, GE, Beautyrest, and so many more. Take them home today, then make low monthly payments until they're yours for good. Aaron's great rent-to-own deals even come with easy approvals and free delivery. That's Aaron's, the rent-to-own power of the AA team.